Yeah. Well, uh, just because this is a f- like an interesting part of the conversation that I might leave in, sure, and be a part of the podcast. <laughs> Let's talk really briefly about where we are. Because people are like, there's a trail somewhere and they were just (laughs) rambling on about it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, so Catchmack Bay State Park. So, we're we're right now in Soldovia. We're sitting in Soldovia and, um, and uh, it's at the tip of the Kenai Peninsula. So you can drive to Homer, which is our big city down here, and then you have to take a boat or plane over to Soldovia. Catchmack Bay State Park is across the water from Homer and up the coast from Soldovia, so it's very nearby to us here. And um, there's an existing trail system, and yeah, we've been working on this other one. And the thing that's really gotten people excited, which is really the reason why I feel like it's worth my time, our time, whatever, to keep working on it, is that the trail goes from the water on this side of the peninsula and goes to the ocean on the other side. And that's something we didn't have before. Um, so it goes from Catchmack Bay to the Kenai Fjords, which is distance-wise not very far, but logistically quite complex to get to the other side it's a long way for boats rough water they don't often go around that peninsula and Hmm. so pretty much you know a few fishermen get out there and you can take a float plane maybe as a goat hunter but very few people really get out to that outer coast side Hmm. what's significant about the other end of the peninsula well it's awesome um, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's. Uh, I mean, uh, there there aren't there. Are, I mean, there are other places in Alaska that have have a lot of similarities. But it, it's it's you're coming from mountains that are high, cane glaciers, tundra, and all that sort of stuff, and dropping right down into these fjords, deep fjords on the open Pacific coast. So you've got your uh, you know exciting weather. You've got big storms that roll in off the Pacific right into this area. And, um, and it's also rainforest and, and really as far, um, you can get, a, you, you know, Kodiak has rainforest, but we're kind of right at the very Western and uh, limit of the rainforest. And, uh, and when you get to the South side, technically where we are here, you probably call it rainforest, but there it's definitely rainforest. I mean, it's, um, it's pretty cool. Big trees and, um, steep mountains and awesome ocean and rain. Yes, and we yeah last year when we were out there we got caught by a storm that in three days dropped about ten inches of rain, Whoa. which is a lot of rain. <laughs> um, yeah, we just moved up here from Central Washington State, like the Moses Lake area, and in the area where we lived, I think we got seven inches uh, annual. So it's oh. true desert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so like perspective ten, wise, ten inches like, in three days is significant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean all the it mountains felt like were just a lot. When we were there too, yeah. and like all everything turned into waterfalls, all the mountains, and of course we had a huge crew of volunteer trail builders that still like went out in that every day and uh, yeah, our, started our crew was hacking away. They were they were Alaskan style badass last year. They were like <laughs> a lot of people were super like we had we did a lot of scouting we were starting from like okay we're on the beach we need to get um seven miles or like seven and a half miles 5200 feet of elevation change up and down um and we have three weeks and we have no plan i mean we had a plan of some sort but we had no route and uh, so we were scouting um cutting trail building tread and all of this was just going on in this like insane train out through the through the wilderness um, so it was, it was super, super intense. And yeah, the crew was incredible. Like, uh, I was, I was so impressed at people. There were people up in the mountains in the middle of the storm when it's like driving, drenching rain and like digging out trail along these steep slopes. <laughs> so did your gear hold up and work out or did you just get used to being wet? 
not much rain gear really works yes. well over the long term. In that case, the people who had the like rubber fishing rain gear were the best off. But mm-hmm. you know, even then, I think everybody was at least somewhat wet. Yeah, <laughs> we had a, a titanium goat tent with a with their stoves. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but those are awesome. And I've had now several experiences like with big groups that include a wide range of capabilities going into really hard climates and and we've also had our own trips where we've gone out into some really like pick the worst weather and go somewhere interesting um and uh it totally changes the experience if you can go into a hot tent with a roaring fire and you know maybe not completely dry off but get a lot drier and certainly get really warm not just like oh i'm no longer hypothermic but like warm yeah. warm <laughs> like yeah. 80 degrees inside the tent warm, <laughs> yeah that kind yeah, of yeah. Thing. yeah yeah i'm yeah. sure it can be we had it the tent once 60 degrees when it was minus 10 outside I yeah think? i think that's wow. right so 70 degree difference yeah, yeah that yeah. would it won't hold that you yeah. know it doesn't hold that yeah. but it it yeah it when you have the fire ripping it'll it'll do that Cool. Yeah, we do have a n- newish shelter with a stove, but yeah. we haven't gotten caught. You know, we haven't been in anything too incremental yet. Well, you just have to do something we that's need stupid. To. Yeah, you we know? need to go to the <laughs> other side, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is Alaska DIY. Alaska DIY. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're sitting here in. I was gonna. You're, uh, you go by Hig. Hig. Yeah, yeah. But your name is Brett. Brett Wood. Brett Wood Higman. Brett Wood. That's, that's Higman. the full thing. Had to shorten something in there. Yeah. I've been. I've been. Wait There's the, the coffee. coffee. <laughs> wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not picking up very loud. Go ahead and yeah, talk. Okay. I I've been Higgs since I think sixth grade or so. so. Okay. Cool. So like my mom calls me calls me Brett. Um, but. I noticed that. My wife calls me Hig. I figure she's a fairly authoritative source. So, um. <laughs> Okay, great. So we're sitting in Hig and Aaron McKittrick, uh, your yurt. Yep, yep. And yep, we live in Soldovia. I grew up in Soldovia, and we moved back here in uh, 2008. 2008, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. <coughs> and Aaron, when she's done um, making the coffee, she can jump back on her mic and say hello. Uh, but... Oh, okay. So a couple of things that I was thinking about just briefly is there are probably going to be several people listening to this podcast that are not from Alaska. Great. Yeah. And we should probably explain some things that are pretty commonplace here or some terminology. What does fjord mean? Oh, fjord is like, uh, it's basically a deep bay that was carved out by glaciers. Okay. It's generally, if you're picture like really steep mountains dropping down into the water and then typically continuing down deeper um, unless it's been filled in with sediment or something. But um, uh, so, yeah, that's a fjord. So Kenai Fjords, is there a state park? Is that a national park actually? And so we're in the state park portion when we're talking about this trail, uh, but the national park's not that far away. So it's contiguous. And then there's also the Kenai uh, Wildlife Refuge or National Moose something. I don't know what it's called exactly, but it's a national national refuge. refuge. That's on your map that Um, we were looking at. I I think that it maybe was originally called the Moose Refuge and then they changed it to just Kenai Wildlife Refuge, something like that. Okay. And um, and so anyway, there are all these protected areas that are actually contiguous there. Um, and Kenai Fjords, I'm just using that to refer to all the fjords rather than just the part that's covered by the national park. Okay. Um, and the fjord, is this side considered fjords? 
in Kachemak Bay. You would uh, typically you wouldn't call Soldovia Bay a fjord, but you would call Tutka and Sadie. Oh, okay. um, these, so Tutka is where our trail starts, and which you is would just call those next fjords. to Soldovia Bay, just to the uh, what would it be? Yeah, east it's a um, couple to the yeah northeast, I guess. Northeast. And, and uh, um, there's Jackloff Bay, which is a really small bay in there, and then and then okay. Tutka, which is quite close to Jackloff. So anyone interested could look at a map or get on Google Earth or Google Maps, and if you just punch in Soldovia or Homer, you're going to see Kachemak Bay which cuts in out it'll cut in from the east out of the main cook inlet channel um towards the fox river at its headwaters and the homer spit juts into it and we're kind of like just south and west soldovia is just south and west like you were describing before from the homer spit and so due south of here is where the trail leads up and over the alpine up and over the mountain ridge it ends up being east actually oh, from where we're east? sitting it, oh, yeah okay. it, it it just south is a fine way to think about it but it's actually more east from where we are right now but Catchmack bay state park if you were searching for something yeah that'd be a good place to start because okay. that's that and that's where a lot of visitors go and uh, you if know, you what are looking at a map of alaska south of anchorage you see the kenai peninsula and it kind of looks like it has a mouth Kachemak yeah. Bay is the mouth, right. and Homer's on the top lip, and Soldovia's on the bottom lip. So there's a thing in Alaska where if you talk about going to the southern tip of the Kenai Peninsula, you're talking about typically Homer, which, because you can drive there, I mean... We are just beyond the I think if someone's road. tip, I, I, w- the, I, would think, I would think out here, but if they just said right. going down the Kenai Peninsula, going down. then I would think of Homer. Yeah, so like <laughs> people from Soldovia, I can imagine, would be like, no, this is... This is su- the yeah. southern Kenai Peninsula, not Homer. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, across I think Homer's the southern, but yeah, the tip of the Kenai Peninsula, I don't know, whatever. Okay. I, I'm not sure. More commonly is that people who don't know Soldovia get confused and think it is Soldotna, which is also on yes, the Kenai Peninsula. Our, yes. <laughs> right. Our kids A little ways were having north. to really work hard to keep themselves yeah. from saying Soldotna when they knew yeah, we were yeah. coming down here. That's okay. actually really common confusion. Yes. yes. People say they've driven through our town and I tell them they have um, not. Have not. <laughs> also Seward even, Pretty like just for people, like just, yeah, it's <laughs> less syllables, but has a similar sound. Um, okay. So if we know what a fjord is now and then a year, I'm, I mean, there so, are probably some people so who don't know what a year it is. If you were to be really authentic, you call it a gur. That's the Mongolian term for the round structure. It's a, it's basically a tent, uh, but a little more solid than a tent. But it's got uh, lattice walls and and then rafters, and then there's a fabric outside around that. And so, yeah, it's a small round house like ours, not including the floor. Like if you're just taking the structure, the the part that keeps you dry, you can fit the whole thing on a big truck if you break okay. it down. Now, we haven't, we've some years ago given up on the idea of ever moving it. Um, we, we've kind of set down roots, and so we've made some alterations that would make it difficult to move ours. But some people do actually, on a, even on a yearly basis, move their, their house around. Yeah, so it's a ra- it's like a cylinder walls, like yep. forming a large circle interior space with basically a cone. Like yeah, just often, shape. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Often there's a the skylight shape. in the middle. Skylight and, um, in the center. And you have a fireplace with a, yeah. Yeah. With a stovepipe going through the center. Yeah, the wood stove heats the Or wood the stove, place. rather. Yeah. yeah. So, and a lot of windows and a lot of light, a lot of natural light. Yeah, the big skylight in the middle, like, makes for awesome light. Um, mm-hmm. That's definitely one of, the, one of the pluses. We, so we finished up, we did a trip in 2007 into 2008 where we, um, I was in grad school in Seattle. Aaron had just finished that up, and um, we 
you know, had a window. So we, we decided we can take a year and go do something interesting. And we, uh, we'll get, yeah. Are you going to tell us? Here. Well, I just, yeah. I just, I was just going to say how we ended up in the year okay, cool. is, is we walked up here. We can, yeah. If you want to talk about more, <laughs> more about that later. later. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, but we didn't have any plan and we le- ended up in Homer and we had decided we were going to be in Seldovia, but we had, we had no like job lined up. We had no, didn't know where we were going to live. I have family here. So that made that simpler. But uh, we literally just like walked into this shop that was in a yurt and we were like, oh, a yurt. I hadn't thought about that. And it was something, Erin uh, was pregnant at that point too. And so we were like, this is a house. We're no good at building houses. This is something we can have set up within a reasonable time frame. And so that was kind of how we started. And we were like, I hope it, if it works for us for five years, then that is worth it. And now it's been 10 and we're, we're still pretty, I mean, we've added on a lot, but but still pretty happy with it. So definitely your primary residence and in, in the near future, no threat of picking up and moving. I don't think so. No. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) yeah, nothing in the plans there, but the option does exist in theory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would take a couple, like there's a window across from you there that, that we, we went ahead and just sliced through the lattice cause we got tired of looking through the lattice outside and, uh, you know, we put glass windows on that make it a little bigger, but we could still take all that apart. It's screws, you know, yeah. you just need, need a screw gun. Thanks so much, Aaron. She, Aaron just poured coffee for, Here, for all of us. One. Cheers. Oh, are you cheers to me or are you saying no. I can have a big one? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Afternoon coffee is a lifesaver. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, oh, and just briefly, like the history of the year, you mentioned Mongolia. Um, so it was a way for, and I'm just going back to, like I didn't do any research on this, um, but the the kind of nomadic peoples of the Mongolian steppe, is that the That's right, yeah. Area? Yeah, and I, I mean, as, I don't know a tremendous amount about it, but at that level, yeah, I, th- I think that's correct. And they still, a lot of Mongolians, like you go to, uh, is it Ulan? Ulaanbaatar, or well, the the big city that's now like this huge. It's got this huge mine outside of it, so it's really um, active. And from what I hear, there's like thousands of yurts, like the whole outskirts of town at least are are yurts. So they still they use them very seriously there. Yeah, and it reminds me in a way of the the North American native teepee, you know, in that it's a little more structurally sound than just like some tent fabric. Um, but it's, you can definitely pack it up and, and move on following the herds and, and yeah, it's definitely different than that, but not completely alien. Yeah. yeah. And, and so. I think, you know, the reason you will see, you know, these yurts here and a fair number of yurts in Homer too, is there's actually a company out of Homer that makes the kits called Nomad Shelters. And so they have been kind of spreading the idea around the region. Yeah, and they and they've done a, like there's there's a company in Oregon that's been doing it for a while, and, they, and Nomad really, uh, uh, they they were kind of thinking about some of the Alaska problems, like a lot of snow on the roof, for instance, and so they reinforced some things and stuff like that. It's a really one just so for any architects in the audience, one really funny thing that's I think is really interesting about the yurt is you've got these lattice walls, and then you've got this rafter roof, but there are actually no compressional elements that can connect them. There's no continuous wood. There's a cable that runs around the ring. It's a steel cable. Yeah, like a steel inch. cable. Yeah. And uh, and so it's actually a tensional element. The, uh, the, yeah. the roof is held up by tension, which is kind of a weird weird unusual uh, architectural detail it's very interesting i like it it's not the first time i've been in one but i've always enjoyed the time that i've spent in them because there's this it's a very open space mm-hmm. and most of them you know have a lot of light and just a neat feel to them so anyway that's a fun yeah. that's a fun thing to be in in your home so thanks for having <laughs> us here um 
And then, okay, so what? Let's talk about a little bit about a little context or background. What you do for a living, Hig, and then we'll get back to Erin since she was up making coffee when we first introduced her. She, but uh, what do you do for a living here in Soldovia? Well, you- so so I I got a PhD in geology, and actually, you know, the the, the a PhD of, ultimately comes down to like advisors signing a piece of paper that happened uh like 22 hours before we left seattle on foot so um so i didn't really have a plan of what to do with that phd or anything and i got here and um uh there's a small consulting company in town that does um basically a lot of things related to oil spill risk management so trying to understand you know what happens if a vessel is cruising through the north pacific and it loses power and starts drifting and you have to scramble a a tugboat from somewhere and that sort of thing and um and so i do i'm mostly an analyst there i'm not using i once I've used my real geology background, but almost always I'm working as someone who's a programmer, analyst, this sort of thing, do a little pro- project managing too. So that is like kind of bread and butter. And um, and that's been an awesome, awesome company to work with, partly because they're completely understanding of our habit of saying, yeah, we're going to vanish completely off the grid <laughs> for some months or whatever. And they, they you know, they'll, they'll work with us, uh, work with me on, on that schedule. That's pretty convenient. Yeah, well, it's super enabling. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah, it's 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 been good. We also run a nonprofit, Ground Truth Trekking, and and on occasion that does actually pay me as well. And more of the real geology I've done is there. And my specific area of geology is geologic hazards, especially tsunamis, but also earthquakes. Tiny bit of volcanoes in there. Um, and uh, so, like a few years ago, there was this huge landslide and tsunami in Icy Bay, Alaska, and I. Um, organized this whole like there was like 30 scientists that came and went at various times out there and the huge project and um, and that was all run through our nonprofit um, and uh, so it, it, it it's it, what that means is super project specific like what it's the the nonprofit doesn't isn't so much about like its central mission it's about the projects that are conducted under the umbrella of that and you talk to Bjorn too and he's also a he's he's one of the board members of ground truth trekking um and then sometimes there are other things that come up but those are those are really the the big pieces of my life that i would call work and and you know like i said ground truth trekking only sometimes pay with that work um but uh yeah does that make sense yeah no it's great <laughs> so we wear a couple different hats yeah and occasionally disappear for months on end yes okay cool. <laughs> <laughs> sounds great it's a good right. summary <laughs> aaron hey thanks for the coffee ah you're welcome no trouble <laughs> Um, okay. So you have, we're familiar with some of your work just because, um, we've been reading it, (laughs) reading some of your books, but maybe speak a little bit about what you do and, um, how you kind of contribute to this life you guys have put together. Well, I'm a writer. Um, It didn't start out that way. I actually went to school for molecular biology and I have a master's degree in molecular biology and realized at that point, though, while the subject matter was interesting, the lifestyle was just not for me. The, you know, living in the city and working in the lab all day, forever. And so I got out and ended up, uh, you know, sort of like Hig not knowing quite where to go uh career wise for quite a while actually 
wow, I was waiting for him to finish his PhD. I sold glass jewelry for a while and did bits and pieces of other things. But then I wrote my first book about the journey we took walking from Seattle to the Aleutian Islands. And since then, pretty much all my work has been writing in one form or another. I've written three books for adults, one for children, and then I've done quite a few articles too, often on, sometimes on adventures, sometimes on more science or environmental issues. And then when I want something that pays slightly better, I've also done some work for the same consulting company that Hig works for doing uh, technical writing. And that's Nuka Research sorts. is the company. Yes. Just might as well stop alluding to it in this complicated <laughs> way. <laughs> I didn't mean to <laughs> Just <be> name it. <laughs> secretive. And, um, you know, I'm also part of Ground Truth Trekking. And again, that's not usually about being paid, but more about doing projects that we think are valuable. And so I've done various writing for um, our website like a lot of things sort of explaining some of the different natural resource issues in Alaska. And I'm not the only person who's done that. We've had other people do that too. I'm curious, yeah, to maybe you guys could explain ground truth trekking. Like what is your nonprofit That's always about? kind of a little difficult. I it's mean, it's, I, a, it's a very fair question. And I do just... know ground <laughs> truth. I think we just watched Heart of Alaska and I think in there you explain what that means, but yeah so so yeah that that's a little easier it's just uh the ground truth uh is uh, a term that it actually comes both from the scientific community and also from the military and people who are spending a lot of time looking at satellite imagery for example and trying to figure out what's going on like whether it's like oh is this landscape you know is there uh this sort of ecological mix of trees here or that and then it, looking at satellite images and then they say well we need to send someone in there and come back with some ground truth and so they you know a person on the ground they can't see everything that you can see on a satellite image but they can provide a perspective that that is that essentially pins these analyses to something that is real um and the military has the same problem that they're trying to say is like you know has North Korea built a new nuclear test site or whatever. They're looking at satellite images. That's a tough one to get ground truth on. But, uh, but uh, you know, yeah, they, they would <laughs> like to have it none, nonetheless. So, yeah. yeah, I think basically where the idea came from for us is that we started out wandering around in the woods, having fun and found out that no matter what our initial plan was, we always learned interesting things. And so, okay, if we learn all these interesting things, even when we're not trying to make that a little bit more explicit and try to share it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Aaron kind of kind of was the one to really lead that idea off. And so in 2005, um, there's this big controversial mine proposal over across the inlet. Pebble yeah, we can mine. talk about yeah. Pebble Mine for uh, sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it was just it was hardly known at all. So yeah, 2005. It seems kind of funny in retrospect, but nobody had heard of it. Like now, lots of people have heard of it. Not even in Alaska, people have heard of it. But then, almost nobody had heard of it, even in the state, unless you were in one of the villages that was right there. Yeah, no, it would have been 2007 before we were, which would have been two years later, right? Yeah, and so I basically like went out there and did a very, you know, 
I don't know, pretty crude reporting project compared to some of what's come later is that, you know, I got myself out there to Nundalt and then I trekked out to the site and, you know, looked at the exploration rigs and the helicopters and took some photos and hiked on back to Nundalton. And this was just me by myself and, and, you know, wrote up something and, and gave them a bunch of photos. And then I put together a website with that. And then all the stuff I could find from the company and other research, which wasn't really much at the time. And for a few years there, when people would search for Pebble Mine, the thing they would find first was that website I put up because there wasn't much yet. Yeah, so that that attention was sort of some of the inspiration. We're like, oh, wow, we went out, you know, Aaron went out and did this thing. It's pretty straightforward and and was interesting. And and this seemed to have a real value, you know. There was, uh, uh, and and that's kind of evolved, that part of it. So going and basically putting stuff on our website um, that is, trying to assimilate what we learned out there and then we bring in a lot of information that we that is your your usual google researching too so it's a combination of those um there i mean it we've kind of found a a place where there doesn't seem to be very many people doing that and um and uh, there's also no one willing to fund that um so that's probably part of why <laughs> no one's doing it mm-hmm. um but uh but those, like, we have an article on acid mine drainage, and if you look at our website, you would hardly, you could be searching around, you'd probably find it eventually, but you would never think to look at that article. It turns out to be the most visited page on our whole site because it has proved valuable. I think a lot of it is actually students and stuff. We can do some analytics to try to sure. figure that out. But it's kind of a funny thing. It's like the internet connects mm-hmm. some sort of surprising stuff. Like people want dirt bagging it out in the Alaska wilderness to like, students studying environmental issues in the Philippines, for instance, we hmm. see a lot of visits from the Philippines. It's like, really, <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh-huh. a, a lot of places that have mine. So Philippines, Australia, South Africa, and it, a lot of it is Alaska in the U S but we do have that international traffic. Gotcha. I also always am amused when I find one of our photographs in somebody's like scientific report on something mm-hmm. or other. Yeah. I found, you know, just in the last, you know, few months, I found a picture of an Alaska marmot and a scientific article. I'm going, oh, that's mine, and a sand lance, and somebody's PowerPoint oh, presentation. Cool. <laughs> and I think a photo of the Valley of 10,000 Smokes on Wikipedia. And so it's, it's kind of fun because we make that stuff available. So it's fun to see where, where those go, up. too. Yeah. Let's, for anyone who has listened to the podcast that I did with Thor and Sarah Tingey, they know why we are here in your yurt <laughs> talking. But for somebody who hasn't, they're kind of, they might be wondering why uh, we're talking to a geologist and, uh, and a, uh, yeah. What was it again? Biology. My, micro well, molecular, molecular biology, biology is my degree. Yeah, your degree. Though it's not what I do every day. (laughs) Yes, but if they read your books, they would know. So, like, from my interest level, I'm fascinated by backcountry travel, trekking, adventuring, whatever it is. And, of course, when I talked to Thor and Sarah, I think Sarah was the one. I, you, you said you listened to that podcast, yeah. right, Hig? Did you listen to it too, Aaron? I don't think no, I did. No, I okay. She was. We were talking, and then Sarah would jump in and be like, you need to talk this person and this person and this other person. They're <laughs> yeah, doing this, this, and that. And like, she just kept <laughs> popping in and be like, you got to talk to... So she was. it was really a great uh, uh, experience for me to just, like, very, uh, I guess mind expanding or broadening broaden my sense of what is happening in the backcountry in Alaska and who is at the core of that because once you step into that I've found now I've I, I've met with them and and talked with Bjorn and 
um, Bjorn Olsen and um, and a few other people. It, it, the circles are small. Like mm-hmm. the, once you're kind of in and you start talking to people, everybody knows everybody who's doing yeah. these cool trips. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> but on the outside looking in, it's like all these adventurers who are kind of like putting their their fingerprint on on this kind of like ongoing story of backcountry adventures in Alaska and, and and beyond, but primarily in Alaska. And I I knew about big trips in Alaska from Andrew Skirka, mm-hmm. which we talked about briefly yesterday, Hig, um, just because he is in Lower 488 and he's a right. well respected and well known adventurer down mm-hmm. there. And he mm-hmm. came up into this huge trip in Alaska. He's an incredible athlete. Like, yeah, that's what right. just blows my mind. Like the kind of distances he covers and day after day. So Andrew. Skirka before he did that we met him up here actually yeah. and he, he did was a, he did he's a experimental trip very diligent researcher and so what he he talked to us and a lot of the other Alaska adventuring crowd before he ever came up here to do a trip basically asking everybody for their intel on all the different places yeah, we tried to convince him to make his trip even longer by going to all these little interesting <laughs> spots that are just off his route. <laughs> gotcha. Which he didn't do. Not but really we gave consistent him, with what he was but doing. But we gave him <laughs> our advice for certain areas, and I know Roman Dial did, and I think he talked to a number of other people as well that are part of the Alaska adventuring community before he did that. Cool. So, yeah, and so I was familiar with his big trip before we moved up here and before I talked to Thor and Saren and started to come to know some of the adventurers here in Alaska. And that's why we're here is because you guys have done some tremendous treks here in the state of Alaska and actually not even here, but uh, I mean, the first one that you did, Aaron, that you talked about uh, writing the book about that to me, just the, the, the amount of miles covered in that, tr- or like just the scope of, uh, it's got to be on par with with Skirka's trip. How many miles was your? Was I think your a first little trip? less than Skirka's. A little less. Oh, was four thousand miles. Four thousand oh. goes through some. We walked four thousand miles from Seattle to. Well, walked, Unimac. packrafted, skied. Yes, traveled. Okay. <laughs> human, human power, power travel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, from Seattle, which okay. is where we lived at the time, and we're moving out of. Yeah, we literally started at our front door. We like handed the key to the landlord and started walking <laughs> i just started that book like as we traveled over oh. here because <laughs> i got it we've been reading mud flats and fish camps mm-hmm. don't forget to put like, your mic on your chin there babe yep it's me You're good. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> so i just read the part about you handing the landlord the keys and getting started i i there they're, like that's one thing i enjoy about like really long trips is you can create that continuity because like if you go you drive somewhere and you do an awesome trip and then you drive back or whatever you travel and, th- and we do that too and like that's great but but there's something about like starting from your front doorstep or ending there or or even just passing entirely through like a large city on a wilderness expedition and it puts things in context in a way that you, you know you don't really see otherwise and in a lot of ways, like, yeah, cities aren't necessarily that far from wilderness in some ways. And then they have all these these various effects on the area around us. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think I would love to have that perspective because even when we drove the Alcan up here 10 years mm-hmm. ago, what sunk into my mind, the fact that, you know, we left our home in, in Washington and drove to Homer to the end of the road. Even that for me was a big concept. So I could imagine doing it on foot and going through all the wild places and the cities would just be even more. And we we love coasts. And so we decided to do this whole thing more or less along the Pacific coast, which is not 
really practical. Well, none of it's practical, right? The practical way is an airplane. But even as a foot traveler, the Pacific Coast is not the most practical traveling location. A lot of longer trips in Alaska end up places like the Brooks Range, places with tundra. And, you know, we were places with brush and cliffs and islands and ocean but you just get the intersection of so many different environments and ecosystems and weather and it's just really amazing although lots of parts of it were quite difficult i wanted to interject a little bit of of context here because it's a common point of confusion that's not our first trip like you don't start with four thousand miles that goes through the alaska winter um we we actually our first big trip month plus was a two-month trip in uh 2001 and we did a whole bunch in well we did a decent trip in 2003 we did a bunch of trips in 2004 and we did some others so that was the foundation that we were building on and um the public service announcement that you don't just decide to walk (laughs) four thousand miles even though you've never camped in your life and set out to do it (laughs) we did know what we were doing yeah no that's a fair point it's like (laughs) it's like the overnight success in in nashville when they've been working hard for five six years trying to make it right 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 (laughs) the headline is overnight success that's right yeah that's that's, that's a nice analogy (laughs) overnight to the observers not to the actual musicians exactly but the scope and, and I don't want to spend too much time on that because uh, I forgot to mention that Jessica's here with us sorry um, my wife Jessica and the reason I really wanted to have her here because you might have to I don't know at some point leave us yeah um, to get some tend to some kiddos but is I want to talk more about the Cook Inlet trip while Jessica can Great. be with us because we have five children you have two really cool, awesome kids that we've gotten a chance to meet. And actually, before we met them, we got a chance to get to know them through your book, Erin, and then through the movie Heart of Alaska. I said to the kids today, it's not very often that you get to go hang out with the characters in your family (laughs) reading book. You know, we've been reading the book, and then so the kids already had some sort of impression of who they were meeting, and then now they hung out with us on the beach today, and, and it's like, they materialized, you know, for <laughs> us. So that's there, fun. There's something strange that happens. Like we're such a, you can tell that like we've evolved from a culture of storytelling or like from a, you know, as a species, because the way that stories like manifest in our memories, I think is so much more powerful than like any other, anything else, like any other way to take in, um, experience because you, we read your book, Aaron, and you do a great job of telling the story, um, of your walk around cook Inlet. And I'll let you tell that from your perspective here in a minute. And, and, and kind of threaded throughout that is the experiences you took your small children with you. And in the stories of the kids' experiences and how they perceive the trip and their experiences, that was all very entertaining. It was an inter- entertaining part of the book. It was part of the, part of the book that we could ident- identify with as parents and our kids could identify with as they listened to the story being kids. And then the movie, The Heart of Alaska, that actually Bjorn Olsen, I think he, pro- what did he produce it? Yeah. Or he yeah, direct- yeah. Okay. Um, which he did a great job with that one. And then to see the kids on camera and to hear their voices, it was mm-hmm. just, it was just cool. So it's like somehow as human beings, like uh, hearing a story or, or watching a film, it becomes larger than life. And so, um, so your kids, Katmai and um, Latuya, we took them to the beach today and they're playing. And I had kind of the same realization too. It was like their voices, like their voices <laughs> were familiar to me because we'd watch the movie and heard the funny things that they're saying on the movie and 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 yet here they are they're just being normal kids and and it's it's like in my mind it's like 
they're larger than life just because yeah. we'd watch them mm-hmm. on a movie, like on a DVD, you know, that we put it on our laptop and saw this huge, crazy adventure that they had with you or spanning several months and several hundred miles. And it, they're just they're just kids. They're just doing their thing. Yeah. And yeah. I think yeah. that's something that a lot of people I think they have this misconception about both adult and child adventures is that there's something superhuman about people who do things that are outside of the ordinary and they think that, you know, our kids must be somehow special. They have some level of endurance or strength or skill or something that other kids don't have, but that's just not true. I mean, I think they're special because I'm their mom, but all kids are special and it's not actually, it doesn't take people that are out of the ordinary in any way other than just deciding to do it. Like that's the out of the ordinary thing is deciding to do it. And, you know, for a basically healthy average person, once you've got that step, that's all you really need. Yeah. I often say the hardest thing is finding the time, Yeah, you know, because and and in my opinion, that time is actually even more important than it might because you might think, oh, we're going to go 800 miles. We need a long time to do that. But it's not just that. It's like if you're out there for a month plus, it is different. I mean, I like kind of I think of it as sort of you start forgetting your other life. Not that you literally forget it, but that life of being out there becomes your normal life. And you can reflect on that other life. But it is your life now to be out there. And and that's something that... um, yeah, we I mean, we kind of settled on that. I don't know when we first started thinking those terms, but we started realizing that those trips where we were out for month plus, we were like those, they have a certain weight of experience that we don't know any other way to get. Like you can have a lot of fun in a week or in two weeks or whatever. And those are, you know, we have great trips like that. But there's something about those longer trips that is, um, I don't know, profound. It might not be quite the right word, but it's more like that. Um, one thing I was thinking about on stories though, I was just going to inter- interject there and it's related to that. It's that, uh, um, that those trips, like it was one of the things that kind of sold us on doing this early on as we did this two month trip in 2001. And like, it was like in the years after that, I kept looking, thinking back and I was like, I can remember every day of that trip. And I still, I don't know if I could go through every day and tell you something that happened, but I might be able to right now. And, and, uh, certainly that is vastly clearer than, anything else that happened near that time in my life. Um, and somehow that experience of being out there, it's not just a story that you tell to other people, but it's a structure that, that I don't know why exactly, but it, it becomes more permanent in my mind than, than most experiences I have. Yeah. I, I, like I can identify with hunting trips because that's what I know and love. And mm-hmm. that's where all, if I have free time, it's like, I think oh, I want to go on a big adventure on the coastline or in the Brooks range. It's like, okay, what, what can I hunt? Like, you know, it's always <laughs> that angle. That's just me. Yeah, yeah. But spending time away, it, it becomes the new normal, like you're saying. And then you, co- I come back to civilization, come back to a city, and it's like the idea of a, a burger and a beer and a hot shower is very alluring. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I get that, and then I realize I'm in a city or in a town and there's roads and traffic, I'm thinking like, okay, now how do I get back to, like, I like the old, now it's the old normal, and uh-huh. now this is the new normal, <laughs> or like I'm returning to this normal that it it's not 
as appealing in many ways, even though that shower was very nice. Um, <laughs> One of the things that people sometimes ask us, is it hard to come back to civilization? And I tell them that we've halfway solved that by not really living in civilization yeah. in the first place. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I, I you heard, know, I out heard, here in Soldovia, we're sort of only mildly civilized. Well, and the yurt helps, right? Because it's kind of halfway between a permanent structure and a tent. So yeah. Yeah. Like when there's here. a big gust, like what we get westerly is they hit us hard. And I, I my desk is against the west-facing wall. And a big gust will hit and it'll push my desk out. Like, Because oh, <laughs> yeah. the wall moves. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 really cool because the extreme weather, it like still permeates in some way. Yeah, yeah. Your shelter yeah. or your space. Um I don't remember what I was reading or listening to at one point in time, but they were talking about that normal, like what mm-hmm. is normal. And I think it was kind of like an inspirational piece. And uh, and the individual was saying like, what if like the best time of your life, if you imagine like what how high that bar is set and like how high above your kind of like everyday grind that that bar is like what that span of of uh, life enjoyment you know or experiences in, in richness and it's like what if you just like took your peg and knocked it up to like that's your daily grind is like that you know you're making that the new norm for every day and it's like he was trying to get people to realize that it's like you can actually make decisions in order to like increase the quality of your life you know you don't have to stay in drudgery there's so many of us like you know, in cities, in especially in the lower 48, I feel like Alaska is a different place. It's just different. People here are different. They see life differently. But, um, you know, coming up from lower, lower 48, I feel like so many people just think it's like you work the nine to five job, you like you scrape and you try to get ahead and it's a slow process. And, you know, it's, it's just, just, just what everybody's doing. It's just what you do. Um, and you have like a week or two weeks of vacation to go do something fun, you know, and usually mm-hmm. that's like Disneyland or something, you know, but he's saying like, what if you just threw all that out the window and whatever it was for you, you made that ex- awesome experience, the new norm. And it's like, I think about that when I'm coming back to civilization from a trip, but you guys like what you're saying is that you guys have actually found a way to keep a foot in both places. Like you have a foot in civilization then because of the way that you orient your life around these adventures, you have a foot in the backcountry. Kind of like you always know there's there was one recently and there's going to be another one. Well, oh, that, yeah. that piece is, I think that's especially important piece of that is that like yeah there will be another one you know and that and yeah, that becomes always, the structure of our lives in a lot of ways. Yeah, we come back and we might not know exactly what the next big we don't trip right now. is, but you know we've got a couple ideas and some thoughts on timing. We're thinking, oh well. You know, my son Katmai, he's about to turn 10 and he hasn't really been out to Katmai. So maybe we'll plan some big trip there next year and maybe that's what we'll do and maybe we'll do something different. But I think that one of the things I thought is our first, before we walked to Alaska, one of our first month plus trips that Hig was talking about was for me, you know, right after I graduated from college, right before graduate school. And that's a kind of time in your life when a lot of people take off. They do some kind of adventure. And it's like, oh, this is your like once in a lifetime chance to you're free. Go do something amazing. And I did that. And then I thought, this isn't once in a lifetime. I'm not I'm not going to put up with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't I'm not going to go out and do that and then decide, OK, That's the thing I can tell stories about for the next 40 years while I work nine to five. And so really we just, you know, decided that that freedom to be able to do things like that was more important to us than 
all of the normal, you know, aspects of career and job and house and whatever. And so we were going to basically set up our lives to make that possible. I think on a much smaller scale, like Abe and I have experienced some of that with like moving up here and doing something very different than most of the people we know. And, and as we move forward into what we want to make more of this new normal is the biggest difference between like the people who inspire us and us is that they're doing it. And what stands in the way of you being able to just say like, let's do that. You know, like if it looks good and sounds good and people are doing it. And the biggest one for me is nobody's in danger. Like nobody's like, you know, we're fine. Then, then just do it, I guess. One thing that struck me is, you know, we live in such a wealthy society. You know, if you lower your standards a little bit about how wealthy you need to be, then there's all this wealth around you. And like, you know, it's, it's uh, by basically, I mean, a simpler way to think of that maybe is just like lower your costs and then there's so much you can do. But there are also, you know, a million wrinkles to this. It's not like our life is perfect mm-hmm. and like we, we screw things up all the time and we overcommit and, and like, you know, there, there's, there's no way in which, which we've done this perfectly. But that element I think has really worked. That element of saying like, yeah, we, it is, despite the cost, it's worth saying, we're going to take three months here. We're going to take eight months there. We're going to take a month here and going out and, and, and uh, putting ourselves in this different life. Um, and that, that I think really has worked for us. Okay. Just, I got a couple of quick questions briefly, then I want to get back to the cook inlet trip. Sure. Um, what was your last adventure? We are just a few days home from spending eight months in South America. And that was like a kind of a whole series of adventures, but we had, we had a one month full wilderness adventure in there and then a whole bunch of other things, several multiple week, uh, uh, volunteer experiences and stuff. And we were around Peru and Southern Peru and, and I guess Western Bolivia. Cool. So eight months on the road total or eight months out of country. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. And a yeah. month in the wilderness in Peru and Bolivia or just in Peru? Well, the, the both. Yeah. There was one continual month-long trip down the deepest canyon in the world. That was in Peru. and um, It's probably cool. not actually the deepest canyon in the world. They say they, it they is. They bill it that way, but well, it's a very deep canyon. What's, Kodawasi, <laughs> what's the name Kodawasi of Kodawasi it? Canyon. Kodawasi? Kodawasi, yeah. Kodawasi, and, uh, cool. a very, yeah, we started at almost 17,000 feet and basically went down to sea level through the course of the oh, trip. Oh, wow. So, um, and yeah, just ridiculous amount of change through that and, and really, really incredible landscape. Um, that was an, it was an awesome trip actually and way out of our comfort zone, which is uh, always a formula for making some mistakes, but also just for having a really, um, yeah, a impactful experience. So is this a self design self-supported yeah yeah adventure mm-hmm. no guide company or no no outfit or anything yeah, yeah. and then That's we did some other things that are sort of on the intersection between wilderness travel and volunteering for instance we spent three weeks paddling on an altiplano lake um snorkeling to look for endangered giant lake titicaca frogs and so we were traveling by pack raft camping total backcountry style but we were also helping this amphibian conservation organization while we were at it. So we did different kinds of things like yeah. that. Cool. Okay. So what is the next adventure? Have you already started talking about some high level <laughs> timing and planning? 
or I don't want to put you on the, the spot if there, you don't want to say. There's ideas out there. No, I, yeah, okay. I, I mean, I guess it's just uh, the closest we have is heading back out to Katmai Park, especially the Katmai Coast, which is a place, despite all of the parts of coastal South Central Alaska we've been, that's one we haven't, and it's intriguing spot, beautiful, all those bears, and our son is named Katmai and is interested in going because he, you know, has never been. And we've toyed both with the idea of, oh, okay, we should do another, you know, another summer coastal trip. And also with the idea that our kids are pretty decent backcountry skiers now. Maybe we should do a winter trip. Better than me. And <laughs> <laughs> maybe, or maybe we'll come up with some other idea entirely. There's some, there's some Arctic ideas that are kind of rattling around in my head too. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, I'm part of our process is like, you know, you kind of, we're each individually looking for that inspiration and then we're selling the selling ideas to to the other person and and really both of us have been the source uh, for some of the ideas that led to big trips so it's uh, yeah was the south america trip was that your first big trip outside of alaska or i mean other than walking yeah. through canada but right. yeah yeah right. It, yeah it was yeah okay cool whose idea was canada that doesn't quite quite count I think it I was think, probably my idea. Yeah, Aaron, Aaron yeah. gets more credit for it. The so, I yeah, I, I, but I think both, that was. But we both took charge of different pieces of that. Yeah, I, I think that I think Aaron, you were really the driver behind the idea of like let's do something really big in this time frame, and I think we both were. It was kind of a complicated convergence on that North Pacific arc there. Um, uh, but when uh, we yeah. when we walked to the specific choice to go Alaska? from Seattle. Oh yeah. Or, oh, I'm sorry. Were you asking you're, about we're, Cook we're, Inlet? You're talking you're, about two. Uh, I know we're you jumping keep around. Yeah, yeah, we're jumping around. Yeah, no, sorry. Cook Inlet was very much Aaron. Yeah. I have a problem in that my brain is not linear at all. I jump all. I have that problem too. over the place, and I and I say I want to talk about this, and then I ask a side uh, like a question about something else, and then we never get back to it. So yeah, <laughs> people. No, Cook Inlet was definitely Aaron though, and and. And I actually I remember because I was initially like, eh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. But the thing that really that really made it sink into me is that that is not just an amazing wilderness trip. The human journey is really cool. All the human landscapes mm. in there, the villages and the cities. I mean, you go through Anchorage. You've got super remote areas with just like a few homesteads in them and that sort of thing. Guiding operations that are based in these remote camps. So like that human landscape was kind of it's. You know, there are, there's a human landscape anywhere, but it's really hard to get the diversity that we had along that route. Um, uh, yeah, that, that was, was cool. one one thing about reading Mudflats and Fish Camps that I really loved was I picked it up at Sarah's recommendation thinking that we were going to be reading about your adventure. And then it was full of all those stories of the different people along the way and the history of the Cook Inlet. And it was way more educational than I had just thought, you know, just grabbing it from the bookstore. So. Yeah, I kind of like to think that anyone who's going to live, you know, in Anchorage or yes. anywhere on the Kenai Peninsula, like, that's a pretty valuable book to read. Because it, 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 it kind of, it's a it's a good way to kind of, I, I can pitch it like this better than Aaron since she wrote it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, No, I know. was grateful, especially being a newbie. I was like, man, I really learned a lot quick. And yeah, yeah, it was great. So let's talk about that trip really quick, just like the logistics of sure. where you went and how long it took and how many miles it was. So, so yeah. the basic idea was around Cook Inlet. And you can think of it maybe as an almost circumnavigation because the mouth of Cook Inlet is like 60 miles of open water that we weren't about to do in the pack raft. So we started <laughs> <laughs> on the eastern side at the tip of the Kenai Peninsula and basically went up to Anchorage 
in the north and then crossed over and went down the other side, the west side, to Cape Douglas, which ended up being about 800 miles. Now, you could have made that either somewhat shorter or somewhat longer, depending on exactly which little bays you paddle across versus walk around. And so we didn't have any strict rules on that. We just did what made sense. And it was that, that's 800 miles total? Yeah. And what, how many of those miles were walking miles? Yeah, we don't know exactly. I think... Probably a little less than half. Yeah, that'd be my guess. Because um, we were walking at that time at the speed of my four-year-old son. He's older now, but he was four then. And so he was too big to be carried, but a pretty slow walker. So we would walk, but when paddling made sense, we often did that. So it ended up being some of each, probably a little bit more paddling. And it was very mixed on a daily basis. Like we might, I don't know that most days, well, I would say, yeah, almost certainly most days we did at least some walking and some paddling. And there were a few days in there where we would just do one of those things. But we were in and out of the rafts all the time and very different settings, which is one of the things I love about pack rafting is that, you know, you get you get that variety. It's it a was very, great very with the thing. small children because they would take their naps in the raft. Yeah. We'd mm-hmm. like walk yeah. for a while and then if the weather was nice, we'd blow up the rafts, paddle for a while. Both kids would like conk right out and then uh, <laughs> we'd land again later and they'd yeah. run along the beach. Our younger, Latuya, she, um, she hasn't napped for years, you know, but... Still, if we get in a pack raft and start paddling, she has to work to stay awake, and she does <laughs> conk out sometimes. <laughs> it's a good technique to know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, so if anybody's listening and has children, um, I'm just trying to, like, think. I know, and Latuya in was many? in diapers. Yes. Latuya was so in that, diapers. I mean, if we're going to go over logistics and then <laughs> yeah. food, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and I mean, I, we read this, but I still, I still think I have questions like, really? <laughs> and one of them is, is like, Abe is always giving me a hard time. Like, I don't usually go anywhere without food in the car uh-huh. because oftentimes I'm only having as good or enjoyable of a time as the kids. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So if they <laughs> want, you know, a drink of water and a snack, great here have something let's keep enjoying ourselves you know and so Abe will be like maybe if you just gave them a break you know and said dinner's at you know dinner's later you ate your lunch and then they wouldn't need all Mm. the snacks Mm. you know Mm -hmm. and so there's something in there that I have a question (laughs) like so do you think that you fine-tuned it down to like this is when we can hand you a granola bar or a crunched up pretzel or potato chip oh, or no, they, no. was it constant <laughs> we just and did it constantly yeah. at Wait, that age a lot sure. of right <laughs> right and they were younger but yeah a lot of the food though that you're you know that is the sort of shelf stable no water so like when you're talking food for hiking for, for light hiking you know you want basically stuff that has no water in it mm-hmm. um and um uh a lot of that stuff is it's easiest to get the snack stuff and you know it may not be the like you know, you're like, okay, it's a very sweet granola bar. And you know, that's what my kid's eating today. But, um, but, uh, you know, they're also really physical and stuff. I think it's, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. We, we still give them a lot of snacks. I think, I think partly I feel like we're always sort of pushing their limits a little bit with what we're doing in general. And I feel like, okay, we're asking you to be hiking all day. We're asking you to deal with the difficult weather and terrain and anything else that might come up. And, you know, I don't really need to enforce meal times too. I mean, of course we we don't, you know, just cook anytime. We usually cook 
breakfast and dinner or sometimes only one of those depending on the situation but yeah we would just give them snacks constantly but when you were out you had plenty yeah i mean that's what it seemed like well that calculation i mean yeah and like our first trip so we did so i mentioned we did one in 2001 that was two months Mm -hmm. in 2000 we did nine days was the longest trip either of us had ever done and that one of our experiments there was to figure out how much food we needed Mm because we really had no idea and we're like, oh, okay, you know, we, we came up with a number and we used that to plan for that. And we found out we were totally wrong. Because what was the number? At that, well, so um, the where we ended up maybe is the easiest because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't remember all the numbers we had getting there. But we now go with about two pounds of food per adult per day if we're working really hard. Like that's intense. And that comes Dry out to food. about, yeah, 5,000 calories a day or a little more. Um, now that, kids are really tricky cause they keep growing up and yeah. it's different every time. And it's not like we've been super systematic of recording what worked best. So we don't even have a good, like, you know, Oh, here's the curve or whatever. Mm-hmm. And of course it's not a simple curve. They have basically though, if you're traveling with kids, you kind of have a built in safety and that it's the adults who are going to give the kids the extra food right. and we have short. And definitely we have had to definitely take done that yeah. a number yeah. of trips where either because our calculation of food was off or more often because you also have to calculate how long it will take you to get from A to B. Right. Yep. And the conditions might be different than you expected. It might be harder. You might just get unlucky. And so there's definitely been any number of cases where we're like, oh, we don't have enough food. So... We'll sit here and feel kind of hungry and eat just a little bit. And the I kids actually kind of hate as much watching, as they want. watching someone else eat while I'm like starving mm-hmm. is is not one of my favorite things to do. But <laughs> yeah. um, that has been one of the experiences. I mean, we try but, to avoid that. We try to we try to estimate as correctly as possible. But you're bound to be wrong sometimes. But even when we're wrong, the kids are fine. Yeah, I know they've never been, but <laughs> it still yeah. is like to me that just seems like such a big piece of of figuring out how to do this. It well, they're, is. they're like, a, yeah. you know, a lot of variables. If, but if you take that two pounds per day, yeah. um, you end up with like with it's kind of reasonable for a long leg to be two weeks. Yeah. And so if you went into it and you're like, well, I want to make sure I always have four days extra food because who knows what will happen? Well, that becomes 10 days. That's a big limitation. There's a bunch of things you can do with 14 that you can't do with 10. And mm-hmm. And so our choice has been to sit, to not have that four days of padding, but then to get really serious about rationing as we're reprojecting what our total time is. And so we've had, I mean, I think uh, I, at least five times where we have been like sort of painfully starving, like mm-hmm. out on trips not because starving that would imply. I mean, hungry. Well, I don't yeah. know what you want to call it, but yeah, like hunger, hunger yeah. at the level where it's changing the way your brain works yes. and stuff. Like, yeah. like, um, you know, not just like I'd like to eat some food, but like less right. than um, in the past. Though we've gotten better at estimating over the, the years. Most recent one was just 2015, I think. Yeah, um, it's not that long ago. So mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 it's. Uh, but then, yeah, with the kids, we you know, on that one in 2015 was with the kids, and we had. Um, and yeah, they were eating and they were able to eat as much as they want the whole time. But I also think logistics are sometimes, you know, an underappreciated wilderness skill. So everybody <laughs> thinks yes, that like a wilderness so. skill, you know, pack rafting or rapid is a wilderness skill or climbing or, you know, building a fire and a snowstorm. But, you know, actually like on the Cook Inlet trip, you know, going into the supermarket in Kenai and being able to quickly and accurately purchase, 
you know, 10 days of camping food for a family of four that's going to be the right stuff and the right amounts and get in and out of there in an hour and then repackage it into your backpack is actually just as difficult. But people don't. I think, think it must that. take a mom or something because that's when Ava's <laughs> proposing some of these new things that we could get into. I'm like, okay, okay. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking like, it's a tough enough job to meal plan and keep everything going at home, you know, <laughs> let alone like out in a backpack. Well, one, one thing that, that we've thought about a lot, and I, I think you guys are probably past this stage, but, but maybe some of the listeners not is if you have kids and maybe, maybe young kids, you know, and, and like, and you're like, I want to get out and do some adventures with them. I think a natural thing to do is to imagine that time you're like, Oh, I took my kid to the grocery store. Right. And like, crossing the parking lot was like hell Mm -hmm. you know like they were i was felt like they were gonna get run over by a car and like they were screaming at me or whatever you know and you're like that was really hard i'm gonna go out camping with them and then you go out maybe you go one night and you're like it took us like half the day to get out the door and like the kid complained about it when we were there you know and then that's the end of it right because this just is not working it's different when you go out for a week mm-hmm. or for two weeks because those transitions suddenly become a much smaller part of the whole story. Those transitions are, you know, yeah, I mean, we've had some pretty bad first days on long trips. And um, then you get into the groove of it. The kids figure things out. You figure things out. You know, you don't want to start with something that, like, pushes your limits in crazy ways. You start with, with something that's quite reasonable where you're like, I would enjoy that. I think the kids would enjoy that. You go out there and... You do have some, I mean, and and in the middle too, you'll have some times that don't work great. But I usually look back and I say, well, you know, I've had times when don't it doesn't work great when I'm at home too. And with those longer trips, it seems to be you know pretty comparable. And then you have the benefits of that long trip. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's not necessarily, I think, uh, a really intuitive what that is like if you're working with just you know, an overnight and Mm -hmm. a few things like that as a basis. And even for us, I think we, we settle in to, you know, and like you said, the new normal or whatever, I haven't Mm -hmm. ever done a big backpacking trip, but I can think of trips we've done with the kids where the best part was, you know, wrapping it up and knowing we had all of that time behind us where we were out doing something that we all could settle into. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that's so true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that one of the reasons I'm interested in the kid thing too is because like um, within the hunting community, I don't think enough people are talking about getting out with their kids. Mm-hmm. And I and mm-hmm. I definitely don't think that enough people are doing it. A lot of uh, a lot of a lot of hunters are men, although the the women hunters is definitely a growing um, segment of that mm-hmm. that population, which is I think is fantastic. Um but a lot of guys choose it as a time to kind of get away and it's right. their their guy time to go away with their buddies and do their thing. And I we've always done it differently. Like um I've done that early on when the kids were younger just because practically speaking it's much easier for me to, if I have a limited time frame to go do a trip in the mountains and put on hard miles without kids. Um but as as our older boys got older and got to the stages in life where they could actually hike and carry a little weight and get into the backcountry, um, I started taking them along. So I think um, Malachi and Josiah's their their first trips were right around nine or ten years old, which is quite a bit older than four years old. And so this is why it's like that. My thinking was like, hey, in order to go put on this these miles in the mountains, like they need to be 
capable, right? They need to have certain capabilities. And I, and the interesting thing, thing about looking at what you have done with your children is that, no, I think they would have been perfectly capable if we stretched, if we could make enough time to do a trip. And that's really the difference because a four-year-old, you know, in terms of actual terrain, you know, if you give them time, four-year-olds can actually, they can, you know, walk and go over rocks and scramble up things and go through the woods. They just can't do it anywhere near as fast as an adult or even a 10-year-old. And so that time is what you need. Also in terms of you're talking about, you know, hunters and folks. And I think that, you know, not to be sexist here, but I kind of see in the adventuring community what happens when people have kids very much depends on the woman. If the woman is a dedicated adventurer and then basically she'll make it so they get out anyway with the kids. But in a lot of cases, I feel like the couple adventures together, but then they have kids and then the wife is home with the kids and the guy goes out with his buddies. And I think that that, you know, I would like to see that that pattern broken because you know, it doesn't have to be the mom, but the parents need to realize kids can do more than you think and you can do more with them than you think. And, you know, you might not want to give your four-year-old the rifle, but you could, yeah, they <laughs> you can could definitely take them. go. And I think that's how we realized it too, was like, hey, you, you can go to the mountains and hunt. I'll go to the mountains and tool around with the kids. Like we can both be there. Exactly. I don't necessarily have to be doing what you're doing. And you, but if I'm going to be taking care of the kids and washing the dishes or doing the whatever, I'd much rather do it in the mountains than here. So let's all go, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And we've had a lot of fun doing that. Like yeah, it's it, worked what, really well. Recent elk hunting, well, not recent now, but an elk hunting trip a couple of years ago was the first time that we decided all to go for an extended period of time. Well, and and, and now and too, in some respect, like Abe's like, I'm gonna go do this guiding, and I'm like, great, I'm gonna take the kids to see what parts of Alaska we like or where we might want to live. You know, just finding the thing I want to do in the same place where he he is. Yeah. Yeah, but not giving it up, that's for not sure. Not giving it up, yeah. But so many yeah, people we, do. I mean, we so really many people know. that you think would never do that, yeah. they end up just falling into that pattern because it starts out, oh, well, they're babies and that seems hard and there's diapers and maybe I'll figure it out when they're older and then it just creates this pattern yeah. and that pattern just persists. We really didn't know what we... I mean, we, we in general, we were not like one of those couples that were like had had a picture of uh of what you know what it was going to be like to have uh uh have uh kids we just we kind of like okay we have kids we'll figure this out i guess and we also really didn't know what we'd do as far as adventuring we we kind of had this question of like well is this like we need to like find a way to uh leave the kids with grandma for two weeks so we can go do something cool because we wanted to go keep doing adventures but when Katmai was really little and, you know, we just had one at that time, um, he's small, so he's light and we went and did some interesting stuff and then we just kept doing stuff. And, uh, you know, we, we were out bushwhacking in 2010 when he was one year old and we, we spent, I don't know, several weeks out, out on a pretty serious bushwhacking trip and then spent a month up in the Arctic and, um, and uh, so there was no real transition. I mean, there were lots of transitions in that the kids, every time they were a different story but we never transitioned out of it. And I think that was really a benefit for us. And it wasn't like, we're going to do this. It was, it was like, 
we just kind of bumbled our way through it and it worked mm-hmm. out, you know. One of the things that I can see though is that from a very early age, you're conditioning your kids to like that. This is life. They're like, this is normal to go out and be yeah. outside and do these big adventures. And so I could see where if someone has not done that with their children and, uh, you know, and they're listening to this and feeling inspired and it's like, all right, they come home. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go on a week hiking trip. And it's like, you know, the family's looking at that person like they're crazy because they've not done any preparation for this. And the kids don't spend a lot of time outside. And by outside, I don't mean like outside in the backyard. I mean, outside in the woods where you don't have any shelter to get under or, you know, unless you're pitching the tent for the night. Yeah. And I think that one thing we have here, not just our kids, but just our whole community here in Soldovia is that, you know, people are very outdoorsy. And I think that's true in a lot of Alaska. And, you know, I've been, you know, our kids and I've led them sometimes. And today they're probably on a hike that I'm not with them, but you know, we, have been taking our kids and a lot of along with a lot of the community on day hikes in the woods all year and all weather since they were babies and I think that and that's a thing that I think probably helps all the children and when people are new one thing especially when they have small children is everybody thinks that their three-year-old is the exception is the one kid that's never going to get used to it because all three-year-olds complain mm. on hikes. This is something I have seen enough times that Universal I'm pretty truth. sure. <laughs> but however, they'll say they had a great time and they'll remember the beach mm-hmm. they were playing at, not the hill they had to climb on the way back. I think another thing... And then thing when they're older, they're pretty competent. We had a three-year-old uh, who's super incredible hike uh, the whole, what, 20 miles of the... Oh, Ada? Yeah. Yeah, of yeah. The, of the yeah. trail we built um, last summer on the way she back. Did, she did awesome. And, and, you know, her parents are pretty outdoorsy and have been. But one thing, just thinking about those, you know, the audience members who may be like, well, maybe I will take this as inspiration to go out there. And I think that um, it can be a really good thing to, you don't, there's no reason to try to make this challenging. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, Correct. when you get try excited, to make it easy. Yeah, yeah. try to make it easy. So like, like a forest service cabin, but that's pretty far out there, you know, and you get a week and you, you have that base, like that could be totally change things for, for, for a kid. Um, beaches, lakes. Yeah, beaches. Yeah, all kids like bodies of water. At least beaches all the ones are I've awesome. Seen. Yeah, yeah, and and um, and uh, and just uh, not really thinking about covering a lot of ground. You know, think about a place that you're like, I'm going to go there, and like, well, maybe we're going to, maybe you do have an ambition of covering some ground, but it's it's not. It's just to change place. It's not about the miles you're covering. If you really get in that covering miles, like you don't want to start there. Like you yeah. really, really don't. Um, and it may not. You may not want to end up there either. You know that just depends on how it goes with with your family and stuff. But uh, but covering miles adds this huge stress and this conflict between parent and child because most young children, at least at least our children and most I've met, they don't have a vision where they're like, I'm going to sacrifice in order to make it 15 miles today. Mm-hmm. That's not their vision. You guys have some tricks Malachi? for that though, oh. don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember hearing about some tricks in, dinosaur, in the book. Uh, different dinosaur names for rocks and stuff. Yeah, well, we, you know, we... different every year, yeah. you know, because as they get older, the techniques change. But I do think that, you know, that sort of, 
what mentally occupies them, you know, now it's not a physical limitation. Yeah. It's, it's, that's very it's psychological. Very that's you know. all people. That's mm-hmm. not right. just kids. Yes, and I talk to adults and I'm like, this is in your head. They're like, no, Especially no, no. in your work. Well, right? yeah. 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 Well, and God I was thinking, guide. Yeah. I was thinking too, that you, I think when Malachi first started doing longer, bigger trips with him, you sort of burned him out. Right. Yeah. On that sort of a, yeah. Individual personality. So I started my kids duck hunting. Because it was perfect. Like we could go, we could make Walk a fort, to a, yeah. build a fort. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Early Glide. in the morning, <laughs> sit there, drink Walk hot there cocoa the and yeah. eat cookies. And you're sitting in the weather all day. So there's yeah. like this element of like, no, we're not going to go home. Mm-hmm. No, it's okay that you're cold, but we'll try to figure out how to warm you up. And then there's like this intermittent excitement, you know, so, um, so but we're not walking anywhere. And that was a great way to get them started, I felt. like In fact, I think it's the ideal way to get a kid into the outdoors. It's like three years old. Just I was three years old when I started taking them. Um, and it's still, it's, it pales in comparison to what you guys have done with your kids. But I think that shocks a lot of people that I've talked to who are hunters. Like that I'm taking that kid three years old out and, out, you know, outside all day hunting. Um, that was a great way. And then, yeah, what, what Jessica was talking about is Malachi, our oldest boy, uh, kind of his personality is that I pushed him a little too hard too early and kind of burned him out and I had to back way off. And I was cognizant of the fact that that's a, that's a temptation for an adult to do kind of like looking at your child saying like, Oh no, you totally have the physical capabilities to do this. Let's go do it. Realizing and then not kind of taking into consideration that, Oh, the mind has to be there, right? The cycle, the, the psychology has to be there. Yeah. And if you, and this kid still, even now when he's a teenager, he has to take in his surroundings. He mm-hmm. has to look for every mushroom. He has to like, oh, that could be know. a great thing. Yeah. Like if you, just, if you have a trip that works with that. And that's um, the time, you yeah. know, it ends up being the time and mm-hmm. I think we've gotten a lot but, better about it but dad's competitive and goal oriented yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. so, so they just need their that. separate time but and the, I think that we have some of the you know we have to pay attention to that too with our kids and in, in our they case aren't I, fast. they aren't fast and in our case I think I have to be the most careful of that with our younger one Latuya because for two reasons one is she is more of a like putter along and pick the flowers kind mm-hmm. of girl and you know she's perfectly physically capable and another is at least we only have two kids and they're fairly close in age and size a little less than two years and so I think it's really easy to kind of like ratchet your expectations up with the older kid and just sort of expect the younger that kid the younger one up. can keep mm-hmm. up and so I think that we expect more of her yeah. at a younger age than we did for her brother when we still had her younger tagging along. And so I just have to sort of step back and think, okay, she really, she might seem almost the same size, but she is actually two years younger. Mm-hmm. And what did we actually ask him to do when he was this age mm-hmm. and just sort of scale back a little bit because he gets a little like, ambitious and competitive and we're like oh yeah we can do this and that and the other thing now and you know it is important to do that like kids can do a lot but you want them to enjoy it right and we have the opposite problem with our too so and it kind of goes back to the fact that as a parent you need to assess like accurately assess that your kids are individuals who are they as individuals yeah because our second oldest boy josiah who's two years behind his brother is psychologically He's op- he's up for anything, mm-hmm. yeah. and and, and that allows him. Even though he's he's younger, two years younger, has a shorter stride. I mean, he 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 will push way past, like like on a magnitude of like maybe twice as far and twice as hard as his 
older oh, brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, with him, it's not like inc- that encouraging dead? him to go. Got it's it. just like <laughs> kind of like cut him loose and yeah. just make sure he's pointed the right direction. And so that's that's why I I think I fell into that trap of pushing Malachi a little too hard because I you know knew he was capable, but then his younger brother's like chomping the the bit to get yeah. out there. And uh-huh. once I turned him loose, it was amazing what he could do as a nine and ten year old in the mountains. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like wow, this is incredible, and it's been fun ever since. But uh, you your story of adventuring with the kids on these super long treks has been really inspiring to one, me. One thing that's kind of like uh, been a little odd and we're kind of really recognizing this now and like realizing we have to take some action here is we've done this so continuously that our kids like there's all these skills they didn't really develop because they just grew up in it and it's just part of life and there are certain roles that we take on like and like the navigation like you would think our kids have traveled I don't know, whatever, 1500 miles or something in the wilderness, they might know a little bit about navigation. They actually suck at it. And like, <laughs> and we're realizing this, we're like, oh, wow, we need, and we've started this process. Of yeah, like, Kat, Kat Mai gave no. me directions driving through Saldovia today. Did it work? He's like, I know if you just get to this one spot, I can tell you, but we might have to walk from there. <laughs> he knew from, he knew like by, and it was funny. I mean, even the directions you gave us driving mm-hmm. here, our kids noticed right away that they were all like, physical land like there will mm-hmm. be a pile of dirt and then a boulder yeah there's like a street sign on the other side for, there so, aren't a whole but, uh, lot of street yeah. signs around here and those that are the locals don't necessarily know notice them i i still have, i mean i grew up here and lived then moved back i still there's no, like really common names that i'm like yeah i'm trying to remember where that is yeah <laughs> um, but but yeah, no, it, it's, it's, I think that, you know, I think that the potential for them to learn that is awesome. And we have all these great places for them to do that, but it's really takes some intention because that's something that's been, we have been traveling for, you know, doing this kind of trip for nine years when we had kids and, and so we do it almost without thinking and how you like, what kind of information do you have to keep track of in order to, you know, get where you're going and then to realize, oh, wait, you know, the kids aren't picking this up at all. Like, well, it's just like um, any life skill. You know, you can cook dinner for your kids every night, and some kids are going to jump in and make sure they learn. But a lot of times, if you don't initiate something, they'll just eat dinner every night, and they won't learn to cook. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or exactly. do laundry well, and, or dishes. And it's dishes. part of that. Any of it. We yeah. were talking, Hig, earlier about maps and how we grew up with everything was a paper in your hand and now they're going to be using mo- more than likely some sort of electronic device with a blinking dot and even we have to learn kind of a new system or transfer our skills so maybe that's a good time to either bring them in but i find myself being a little hesitant like i know how to get somewhere if i look at a map you know and then switching to this new technology sometimes yeah I, you know it interesting i mean that having a gps I, this is you know a little bit of an aside but uh, having a gps and knowing right where you are like it's something i've been kind of long ambivalent on and and there are trips that i've done where i'm like oh yeah we could not have done this in this way you know we could have done something similar we could not have done this trip without that like not only knowing like, oh, I have a basic, I know how to get from here to there, but like I know exactly where I am mm-hmm. relative to these different features, even though there's like zero visibility out of this altar patch or something. I've been that slowly corrupted. <laughs> I'm good at reading maps, but when you have that yeah. little blue dot, it's hard not to just start mm-hmm. using it more and more. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 still, I still love having maps. Actually, I think one thing, you know, this is in just 
constructing an adventure, and this is something we've talked about for a while, we haven't done one like this, but I, I'd like to still, is, is you do a trip and you don't bring any map. And you actually pick an area you don't know. And you kind of look at how, you know, how do you see a landscape when you're like, oh, I need to make a map as I go because I need to continue navigating and I want to figure out like how to get through this landscape. And um, I think it could be actually a really... Um, a really compelling experience. I think you could learn a lot and you would see things you wouldn't see with that map. Um, it sounds like just a stupid idea at some level, but <laughs> I think that there is something that actually it might, might be more substantial in yeah. there. I don't know if we'll ever do that, but one thing, anytime I'm anywhere, you know, especially with all this modern technology, it's really interesting to try to imagine yourself in the shoes of all the people who did this kind of thing long before there were maps where you might have, you know, a rough sketch of the coastline with maybe a mountain on it or something for the whole state. Or even in modern day places, we were recently in the Amazon jungle in Peru and we were doing some mapping with a, a nonprofit down there. And so we were wandering through the jungle with machetes, trying to find trails and trying to make them. And you come across all these trails that are made by people getting Brazil nuts from the Brazil nut trees and they're just winding through this jungle and you can't see anything and like it's so easy GPSs. to get turned around <laughs> and I know they don't have GPSs and so just thinking you know how do they do that I, I was told by one person <laughs> that if if the sun goes behind the clouds then they wait because they need that sun oh. for navigation and oh. like that that was a big part of it I thought That's that was kind of interesting they were like Can yeah I, if you're a little lost just we need to take sun. a time out for just a second we sorry do. sure it's raining outside and all of our shoes are sitting at the guest <laughs> here outside not undercover yeah, <laughs> do and you I think that Malachi will have the the uh, presence of mind to the bring them in are here I saw the girls, the girls here. come down. Okay. So. Um, and then Jessica is going to run and pick up some kiddos. Cool. So we'll stop now and then we'll pick it right back up again here after a short break. Um, just jumping back on. Okay, we're back. So, and I'm not trying to rush you in any way, Aaron, but uh, I stopped Hig because we, we were chit-chatting before I had actually turned on the recorder and he started telling me, because uh, oh, because I brought some beers in. So we had, we had just had coffee and we're switching to beers quite quickly <laughs> to jar the system a little bit with the conf chemical, chemical confusion. And uh, Aaron, you had made a comment about that. And and uh, so anyway, I said, hey, I used to make this drink. We own a coffee shop. We would um, pour a small glass of port and then pull espresso, a uh, shot of espresso over the top. And it was like, it was a very delicious drink, but it also was like quite confusing to the mind and body at times. And uh, so Higg started to tell uh, a quick story about a drink in South America. And when he got to the frog, I stopped him and said, wait a second, don't tell me anymore. <laughs> I want to hear this on the mic. So anyway, I want go ahead and continue with the energy drink from Peru. Well, so, so the, these little these little fruit stands are actually pretty common in some areas. Like Cusco has really good ones in Arequipa. And, and there, there'll be these like a row of like 10 identical fruit stands that all sell basically the same thing juice. Um, or juice stands. Yeah. Sorry. Juice stands. And, uh, and a lot of them are like, okay, you know, pineapple juice and, or, you know, mix maracuya, the, the passion fruit and, and mango or whatever. But one thing that a lot of them sell are these energy drinks and they'd be, they'd have like an egg and, you know, they might have a few different fruits in them and they'll have commonly a beer. And one thing we learned is that traditionally there used to be a frog too. They would literally just put this frog into, I think they put it in, live right i think so um into into the blender and they would just blend it right up there with the with the rest of the ingredients beer milk grains fruit 
Yeah, it's eggs. you know all raw, the, raw eggs, raw yeah. frogs. Yeah, raw raw eggs, raw frogs, but and uh, uh, they actually apparently they had to ban that because the frog was was getting wiped out by people making we energy We were told drinks, there so. are still black market locations to find this, but we never <laughs> we never saw. We out. we did not come across any frog juice shops, so um, but it was yeah, very interesting. What kind of frog was it? It was like one specific kind, I think, it, but yes, I don't know what it was. It was related, I think, to the Lake Titicaca frog that we went and studied later, but a smaller relative, and I don't remember the exact species name, but I might be wrong. We never did see that happening. We were told, though. I'm kind of wondering, like, would different... So, a couple things. One, a... a if you're making a drink in a blender, you, you're thinking about proportions or ratios, right? So a large frog versus a small frog could potentially have a big impact in the finished product. I imagine yeah, I they had fr- that figured out. Yeah. But so was the this specific size of frog, was it the right, or this specific frog, was it the right frog because it was the right size? Or are there different flavors of frogs? That's a, that's a good it's question. A good question. You'd you'd have to ask yeah. somebody who's <laughs> a frog connoisseur there. We might have to go to Peru. <laughs> Questions needing answers. Yes, yes. All they right. still sell it with everything but the frog, the beer. Yeah, the milk, they do. The it's egg, it's the fruit, it's the pretty grain. good. We just we just tasted it. Um, uh, Aaron's brother visited us briefly, briefly, and he ordered one, and and uh, and I had a taste. It was it was pretty good. I don't know that I'd order it every day, but I could see acquiring the taste. It was not. It wouldn't have been that hard to acquire the taste, even. What a was the caffeine? Beer milkshake. Beer milkshake. <laughs> uh, did they have a caffeine? I don't think they actually had a caffeine. Oh, you just said it. energy drink. Sorry. Well, you know, it's it's maybe maybe uh, I I don't know, like a protein drink kind of thing. Maybe it's more the more the right idea. Okay, gotcha. What did um, they call it? Do you remember? Hmm. Or I was should there a remember. Name? There was a name in Spanish, and I should remember it, but I don't off the top of my head. Interesting. <laughs> now, my curiosity has peaked. How is Machu Picchu? Oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a zoo for tourists, which, I mean, actually, from my personal perspective, I kind of enjoyed that part. There were, like, thousands of tourists coming through, and we did we did plenty that was not touristy, so it wasn't like consuming our whole experience being, you know, immersed in tourists. But I could see it being a downside for some people. It's a pretty Im- incredible place. It is, a you know, the sort of landscape that you look at and you're like, you know, if you see a picture of it, you're like, that's exaggerated, you know, but it's really that vertical and that much granite. And, um, and then they went in there and they built just phenomenal trails and structures in that landscape. I mean, the, the actual main ruin is on a little, uh, kind of a little flattish area, but it is super steep all around it. And there are trails and ruins that just go up these cliffs and like traverse cliffs where they just carved in to the side of the granite. Um, it's, uh, I, 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 um, we've been working on this trail and so I've been and become kind of interested in using some rock structures. And so when we were in, uh, Peru here, the trail here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And, uh, and so when we were there in Peru, um, and Bolivia, I was really looking at all these rock structures and I had this kind of context of like being excited to kind of learn how to, how to do some of that. And so I really enjoyed looking at all the, all these rock trails that were, I mean, you know, they're hundreds of years old and yes they've been maintained a little bit or they've been restored a little bit but clearly a lot of that is the original work and it has persisted for 500 years you know it's pretty amazing yeah i spent a little bit of time in italy and it was in i want to say 2006 
And just the perspective of time from the New World to Europe is is fascinating. I went to um, saw an orchestra play in a church there. There was kind of like I walked through uh, this really narrow alley that was like the street. Uh, business or the you know it's all stone everything it, this was in Florence it was all stone buildings but you kind of walk through this narrow alley and then the stone of the inner courtyard of this church it was like everything had been built like new construction had gone up oh, around yeah. it right yeah. but the new construction was like a couple hundred few hundred years old the church was like I w- man it was old I don't want to get it way wrong but I want to say it was like 13 Built in thirteen is that would that be too old? Built in thirteen hundreds, it was. That's, ex- is that like getting the Renaissance is starting to get rolling there? Yeah, well yeah, enough, that, that could be right. Is when are the Medici's? They they might have been. You're taxing my memory. I mean, I learned about this stuff, but <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know that we're the best people. Yeah, to be we should spend the next European hour actually history. discussing this. We can all you know like speculate. <laughs> and we can talk speculate. about the way we don't really know. Yes, talk about and, things we don't uh, know. Like <laughs> but I just remember like we could yeah we could Google live. It was old on a scale that I had no real concept. Like you know. Anyway, well, I mean, with trails like of years old. you know, the 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 I've gone, I've so many times had the experience of going out on on what are generally nice like park trails, and you get to like this wooden structure, and you're like, oh, it's probably safer to go around this structure because it is rotting away, and like you know, and I'm sure like that whoever is something. like, yeah, like a bridge or just a, a boardwalk or something, and um, well, especially in a climate like this, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. You're in a rainforest. Like rainforest yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. And um and uh which is built upon rotting wood. I right. mean that's what a right. rainforest well, that's sort why of it's yeah, yeah. So uh-huh. fertile is like how much of the topsoil is actually decomposed wood that or salmon. holds moisture like a like a One, sponge or salmon. Salmon right. are huge, yeah, yeah. One interesting thing that this makes me think of wilderness wise is traveling through the rainforest in BC when we were hiking up to Alaska because they have more different types of trees there and one type they have is cedar trees and cedar trees do not really rot. Right, the western red cedar, right? Yeah, they do and not. And yellow cedar as well. Yellow yeah, cedar as well. Yeah, and neither okay. rots cypress, very well yeah. and so they fall though at the same rate as other rainforest trees and so you end up with this like pickup stick style structure in the forest so you can be walking like two or three levels above the ground on all these cedar logs. Yes. Yeah, we were that never bushwhacking. Away. We were bushwhacking one spot, and this one really sticks in my mind. So it's not like every spot's like this, but we actually went into a tunnel that was basically a gully that enough trees had fallen across over the years, and then it had formed a forest floor. Forest floor, right? And you you just go into this tunnel underneath yeah. it. And what uh, was growing on top? Like what? Uh, it was just a young, you know, like understory like plants. Ferns? I didn't see any huge. Yeah, well, moss, lots of moss, moss. Okay. and then there'd be like um, salal in that area. Yep. Is really yep. dominant, and then uh, I think there were some vaccinium. So you know the huckleberry, blueberry family. Okay, um, something like that. You know, you're it would be impressive if the alders got a foothold or something <laughs> like that. Well, this you know? is area that's not really going to be alder country because oh, really? it's, it's down enough in the forest that the forest is just they need a, okay, a more, need more sunlight. Light. You know, yeah, gotcha. um, but uh, but yeah, um, yeah, it really struck Vine me. Vine maples though, grow Vine in maple. that kind of area. But we don't have cedar here, so you see the trails, and they are you know it's the structures. A lot of them are rotting out, and. And so it's that's part of what you know. I, we've just for our trail, we've just been like, let's just not use any wood unless we 
absolutely have to, and then maybe we bring in treated wood or something. But um, but then rock structures, and we saw places, and these are arid places, not rainforest, but where there were tr- there were um, trails that had not even been maintained, not even used because they had had wooden bridges as parts of them. Um, and they were still there 500 years later. And these are like people going up onto these near vertical cliffs and wedging rocks into little crevices and then building these structures that climb up. Like it's almost like a tooth feel- filling in cross section, you know? Is this back yeah. in South America? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, yep. cool. Yep. And yep. and so anyway, I, you know, jumping as we have been here um, from South America back to here, I, I'm very excited to, to learn about this. He wants to build some Inca ruins in, in the Kachemak Bay State yeah, Park. It, <laughs> less emphasis on ruins. But, or um, Inca, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> Not really Inca either, but you know, yeah. the uh, the uh, those stone trails they were very inspiring and like I I think uh, beautiful too. You know, I love that idea. There's something about I've always been drawn to the natural materials, wood, like large timbers, you know, timber frame that kind of thing. Uh, we own a log house in Washington, um, but the stone, like just the enduring quality of stone, you know, is is fascinating. That the idea that you could. You know, you talk about leaving a legacy and a lot of people today think of leaving a, leaving a legacy in business or, you know, in, in some way that like, uh, you know, it, it gains attention in our culture or society. Um, but the idea of leaving like a structure behind that could still be standing and potentially functional in 500 years or you know, even a thousand is realistic depending on how much seismic activity or, you know, whatever, whatever the conditions are. There's something about that that's like kind of mind boggling. Yeah. Don't get famous. Just build a rock hut. That's right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, I mean, I, I really think about that very explicitly with this trail project we have. I like, you know, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, the reason I think that I've continued to pour energy into it is that I feel that energy in the community and stuff that there's excitement about it. If that is ephemeral and it goes away and then maybe the tra- in 10 years, the trail will be gone and that'd be okay. Um, but I, I kind of think it's, it's going to persist and I think it's going to be exciting. And if it, if people do decide that that trail is, you know, part of their world, that's really important. I think we might be building something that'll be there in 50, a hundred, 300 years, you know, who knows? I mean, it's hard to even imagine, the future that far ahead but um yeah i think i think we might be making choices now that have implications for many many decades into the future and that's kind of exciting you know and try to build something that really has that longevity yeah it's it's very cool and even just like the maps that we were pouring over earlier that you've been working on is is you know just the idea that you took something that you were passionate about and you poured your your love you know a lot of love into it. i mean it's a lot of energy and hard work and you have a vision and you're trying to create something but just that idea that like i think you were talking about the um the map work of like 1950s era um topo maps and you could see how um using those maps you know in your adventures you could see with the level of detail that somebody had put into those or those hand-drawn maps right um yeah, I, I remember. There's some love that went into them. We did a trip in 2006, and we were walking up parallel to the Quijack River, which nobody will know where that is. It's like out in southwest Alaska, and uh, very difficult, like marshy, like thick, thick mosquitoes um, uh, terrain. And um, we were in one of those really marshy parts, and we were like literally like often knee deep in the water, and there's mosquitoes, and um, it was hot. And uh, we looked at the map and there was this tiny little speckled bit on, this is 1950s, maybe 60s era USGS map, tiny little speckled spot. And it had a note next to it said, 
like bare rock or something like that. Or, um, and we were like, holy, I can't even imagine bare rock. Like, you know, we're standing knee deep in like this swamp. And um, it was me and Aaron and our friend Tom. And we just like, we're like, we're going to go there and camp. And we like booked it until 3 a.m. It was middle of summer. It's like light all the time. And, and, uh, and sure enough, like there's this hill and it's got, you know, it's kind of windblown and it's like bare rock. And, um, you know, there's a little more breeze up there and the mosquitoes are down and, uh, and we camped there. And in my mind, I was imagining, you know, this is, this was made in the cold war and they were, I, I, I mean, this is maybe totally false, but as I imagined it, like those map makers were picturing, you know, the, the United States military military standing against the Russians or the Soviet union as they were coming up the Quijack and they were like, they're going to know about this place. This is going to be a good gun emplacement or something, you know, we're going to camp there and we're going to have the high ground and they marked it on that map. And that, you know, that there was a real like intensity about how they looked at that landscape and said, how do I express that in this map accurately? And, you know, better than what just comes out of, I mean, not very automated data processing at that point. Um, so I, I, I look at that as kind of inspiration is like, you know, just you know, if you're looking at, I mean, it's one thing to just take, I'm going to take this data layer and that data layer and I'll put them together and I'll try to balance them right so that, you know, they've got the right emphasis or whatever. And it's another to look at it and say, well, what is this landscape really like? And how do I make sure that someone who is traveling out into it and has my map is going to understand what they, you know, it's, it's going to be able to picture it accurately, you know, and, um, it's, 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 it's a neat challenge and, and, uh, yeah, it provides me some inspiration. <laughs> While we're talking about, uh, this trail we're building, I wanted to mention if you're looking for things to go hunt, the outer coast of the Kenai Fjords is where people often go to hunt mountain goats. That's where you find mountain goats. Yeah. It's been kind of been on my ra- radar a little bit. Is there is there much access on this side, or are most people going out to the outside? Um, I think that the places where people find they can get get to animals uh, within a little more reasonable hike of of tidewater, say, or of a lake with a uh, where they can land a, a float plane, they're mostly on that outer coast. The goats actually, I've been walking at sea level and seen like goat fur in the Devil's Club and stuff. Like they they're really. It's very, very steep there, and their kind of habitat extends right down to the ocean. Um, there's some really cool places with very, you know, uh, very dense goat populations, actually. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I know that there's a registration hunt over here, um, but and I think I, I have a friend who actually hunted it uh, last year. So um, buddy from Anchorage, actually, he went with a friend who was a resident of alaska he had just moved up from washington state last year as well wasn't yet a resident but he did a hunt with a with a local and they came down i don't know exactly where but i'm pretty sure they accessed from this side and then hiked yeah there, the there are places people come from this side and you know i mean it's black bears and mountain goats are the where i hear of people coming from somewhere else to hunt here um and uh, uh black bear is like i think they kind of overhunted this area in recent years um and i don't i never have gotten a total totally clear story there but the the population actually kind of crashed locally and i think it was sort of locally in the areas that were easy access but for a little while there was a lot of um trophy hunting uh of of uh of black bears here have you guys hunted at all 
Well, no. essentially no. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a squirrel that we ate uh, out in the. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Unless that counts. Really yeah, that counts. I, I actually I took it off a branch with a slingshot, and it was a completely clean shot. I'm very proud of that shot. It I was, was it, it was too. dead within seconds. Uh, wow. Um, and and we were we were kind of hungry. It was good. Where was that? Uh, that was an interesting day. Um, so that was out near uh, Northwestern Lagoon in Kenai Fjords. Um, I wonder if it's legal to shoot a squirrel in Kenai Fjords. I don't know. I don't wonder what's the statute of limitation on that. Sort I was of thing? just gonna <laughs> say, just pretend <laughs> it was a long uh, time ago. It was fourteen years ago. Right. Right. So <laughs> fourteen years ago. I, I, um, but uh, um, but yeah, we uh, actually the day before we'd hiked up and uh, we did this just awesome climb over the mountains and we watched this black bear dive into a, a alpine lake and swim across it and and uh, we were descending it was like this bear trail it was clearly pretty heavily used and it's one of the only really good salmon streams in that area and uh, so we were making plenty of noise and stuff we're like okay this is this is definitely like you know be on the watch and all of a sudden this black bear came just like barreling down the trail full tilt like we had literally like two seconds warning or something it's less um yeah well i don't know it was time was a little bit confusing but uh, uh, yeah, and um, it ran, it basically ran Aaron over. Um, and we later reconstructed it, actually kind of like did this, this kind of half-assed bite towards her stomach and pinched the skin a little, leave a little but bruise. didn't bite. Didn't, didn't, didn't break, break the, the skin, skin or anything. And it swatted her in the arm and you could actually see the paw print. And then it spun around, ran back and climbed a tree and was clearly distraught. Like this bear was freaked out. It was whining and... Uh, and uh, so we walked a little bit further, and um, uh, hey, Latoya. and we saw um, this other really big black bear. And so we thought it must have been running away from that other bear. And so it was just running, like, without paying any attention oh. down this trail. And then it had this just, I mean, it probably never sees people on that trail. It's just worst day of its life. Car we were a little bear encounters. Yeah. There. Like, actually, literally just ran into me accidentally. We were a little freaked out too, of course, and there were all there were. We saw other bears, and so we we thought, oh look, there's these islands marked on the map. This is back to the maps, uh, you know. Um, we'll go out and we'll camp on one of those islands. Chances of bear traffic out there are really low. We want to get away from the bears, and so we paddled, and it was right at sunset. We get out into the ocean. It's dark, you know. We can't see the islands, but navigating on the map, and and we paddle and paddle, and we're like come on we should be able to see the silhouette of the islands by now they should have a big stand of spruce trees on them they should silhouette really nicely and then we see these giant like rounded it was there's a swell and there's these giant rounded moraine boulders and they're like right you know we're rising up and falling and they're they're sticking out of the surf and it, it was an old moraine islands that have completely been erased um since the map was made so we ended up paddling way into the night and camping there it was next morning i i shot that squirrel so that's the connection. That's <laughs> nice. all. Not not much. <laughs> nice. But it connected to the maps. So no, that's good. <laughs> Looks like the kids made it back. Hey, Katmai. Hey, Katmai. What's up, man? How you doing? Right on. Do you want to talk on a microphone? <laughs> <laughs> I got no. a quick no. <laughs> quick and definitive no. <laughs> uh, okay. If you change your mind, let me know. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Well. Uh, yeah, you guys are welcome to come in and play, though, if you want to. It's your house. I don't know why I'm saying that, other than it does get awkward when there's mics and stuff. So, what's that? He's not going to stay here long. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know if Jess will be able to join us here or if she cho will choose not to, but we'll see. Um, okay. I want to hear, 
let's talk about some of these big adventures you guys have had because we've talked around them, but we haven't heard much in terms of some of the stories. And yeah. Oh, which one do you want to talk about? You got to narrow it down That's a little. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know. Just out of curiosity, do you know how Years many worth. adventures that you've been on or treks that have been, let's say, more than two weeks in, in length? Well, yeah, like more than a month, let's maybe it's a little easier. Let's say more than a month, because okay, that's, that's easier, easier to count. Um, Man, you guys are ambitious. That's cool. I mean, it's somewhere around 10 to 12, I think. Let's see. Um, a month or more. A month yeah. plus, yeah. And and a lot of them probably would be two months plus. Um, 2001, 4. Three, 2003, that was a month. 1, 3, <laughs> 2001, 2003, 2004. 2004, we did a few things that were semi-continuous. Yeah. yeah. And um, I did more. Um, 2007, yeah, did 8. Uh, 10. Well, 2006 was a month too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 7, 8, 10, uh, 11, right, that would 13, be 15, 15 again. And then. Um, and then, well, we. 2018, 17, 17 18, yeah, what we yeah. just did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lots. Quite a few. <laughs> What? <laughs> I have never done <laughs> anything like that. So, I and it's funny, like, one of the reasons behind me wanting to, you know, sit down and, and talk on the microphone with folks such as yourselves and the Roman Dials and Luke Mells and Bjorn Olsons and of Alaska, uh, <clears throat> and the list definitely goes on, um, is that I used to think that I was pretty savvy in the backcountry <laughs> because I could, you know, go for 10 days and you get, you know, 15 miles from the trailhead and have a really cool experience and come out and everything was fun. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then to meet people who have done, you know, trips that span months, not days or weeks and hundreds of miles, not a handful of miles. And, uh, that's just like a, you know, you guys are doing something on a completely different magnitude, you know. Or well, in some ways, it's not as different as you might think. Because, like, each leg, I mean, you well, add maybe up it's 20 days. But really, it's going to be 14, 10 days, something like that. And so each one is a trip like that, you know. Um, and we've we've decided to do some trips where there are... They're not technical in the sense of, like, crazy whitewater or, like equipment climbing but they're technical in the sense you have to be really really thoughtful about what you're going into so you can have those elements but you don't have to in order to um uh in order to see things that nobody else sees and 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 j I, I mean part of it for me like it's like it's this sort of oxymoron of planning an adventure and like it's it's like finding that thing where you really don't know what's going to happen but then the other thing you want to add in there is you want to be pretty darn sure you're not going to die. Because <laughs> um, you want to... Like as a baseline yeah. kind of yes. requirement. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and so as you gain more skills and stuff, then there are more options where you can do that. Where more places where you're like, okay, I understand this well enough to say I'm not going to die. And so I can go into the setting that's like going out. We did one trip not too long ago. We were out on the sea ice and we were out there while it broke up in the spring, you know. Like that's was awesome which I trip mean. was that so that was in 2015 kids were six and four and we decided to go out and ski around the seward peninsula so we went to nome when the iditarod was finishing up there and we like watched the dogs and cheered and then we took off 
to the north. So we just took off skiing from Nome. Really to the west. Like it's like, yeah, like yeah. if you continued going yeah, if from. You, if you continued going like if from the where the. rod was longer. We yes. were going that way. And we just basically set off into the ski ice and skied around the peninsula. Um, and we weren't sure quite how far we'd get. We thought first maybe we'd get all the way to Kotzebue. We ended up not getting that far. We went about 300 miles until the sea ice pretty much was completely broken up. And it was a really amazing. I think for me, part of the inspiration for that is that, you know, sea ice is something that's climatologically important and ecologically important and you know, I'd heard about sea ice and all these places, and I even live in Alaska, but I'd never really experienced sea ice. And so, like, we're going to go out there, and we're going to do a trip on the sea ice. And, you know, it was a little crazy considering the kids' ages and that it's still dar- pretty darn cold even if you go in March, but it was really amazing. And, and, I mean, this very much hinges on, like, rather than, oh, we have all this knowledge. Yes, we, you know, we're pretty comfortable with winter camping and stuff. So we had some foundation there, but it hinged very much on taking the time. And actually, we had initially planned, we were like, oh, you know, around Soldovia in the winter, we're going to test out all this gear. And we had some, like, kind of funky ideas about how we might travel and, like, kick sleds and stuff. And then we had a winter that was, like, crazy warm. And so we had to do all of our testing, like, on this tiny little frozen lake, which is not really testing at all so we actually went to Nome with an extra week and we spent a whole week uh camping on someone's porch in Nome. she was like yeah my neighbors are worried that i'm like forcing you to sleep out on the on and we're the, like we're trying porch. to acclimate like, we need to get used out, to the know? cold uh, <laughs> right. uh, and um um like one day it warmed up slightly and so all, not a lot of snow but just all this like barely thawed uh, you know icy water came off the roof right onto our tent um but um uh, so yeah, it, having that time we spent, I don't remember three months or something. I'm not sure what it was exactly, but, um, uh, having that time, let us learn the first time we walked out onto the sea ice, we were like, you know, kind of like you're walking onto thin ice. And what we later learned is that that's kind of as ridiculous as like walking like into a parking lot and being afraid you're going to, you're going to fall through. Like this ice was nowhere close. Like this was the shore fast ice in March in front of Nome. It was, there was nothing yeah, was going to happen. Like bulldozers would be fine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But we didn't really know it. And, but we had enough time to gradually pick up our knowledge of all the, I mean, sea ice has this incredibly diverse character and all kinds of weird stuff happening. And by the end we were skiing on ice that really was sketchy. I mean, we were skiing along and the ice would depress. And so the water would squirt up through all these holes around us. And, but we have a pack raft that's inflated right there. We're wearing a life vest. We're wearing clothes that if we get soaked and then get out, we'll be okay. And all of these details, just real quick, what clothes are those? Well, one of my favorites, and uh, um, and it's it's kind of expensive to just buy these, and we've ended up making our own, but we make these um, full body suits out of. It's called Power Stretch Fleece. It's a specific kind of fleece um, that you really don't want to put it inside out because it's got one uh, hydrophobic layer and one hydrophilic, so it draws the water away from your skin really fast. We when if you're really going into a situation where like I'm just going to be wet that stuff is is worth it it's heavier for insulation if it's dry so you know like a standard polar tech or whatever is more insulation per weight in dry conditions and so really we actually maybe because we've gotten lazy and maybe because we try not to get as soaking wet as we did in our past we don't use that that, yeah 
very much anymore. But yeah, fleece insulation is still is nice if you think you're going to be soaking wet. And then if you, you know, I usually prefer to try to not get soaking wet. But anything synthetic is going to be okay. Well, the the fleece, the thing is, if if you're going to go just swimming, then the fleece doesn't really help you that much any more than pretty much anything. I mean, it will, it'll block the water a little bit. But if you're going to get out of the water, if you like fall in a river and you get out and you have a good synthetic fleece of any kind, and, and this power stretch is significantly better, but any kind, that will be so much better situation than if you have many other kinds of clothes. And one of the tricks, and we, we've learned this lesson more than once before it finally sunk in, but is you have to be really careful if you have a thin base layer, like a polypro or something. Um, if you get that wet, so that polypro is great if you're sweating, right? It distributes that water and then evaporates it. But if instead you have a leak in your rain gear, then you don't have enough body heat to evaporate all that water. And so all that PolyPro is doing is it's spreading it out more and taking heat from more of your body. We've had situations where we've literally stripped down naked, removed our base layer, put the fleece back on as our new base layer, and warmed up. This power stretch is Power stretch is best, but any fleece layer, like that has that, it has that thickness. And so like if you go into REI and they start talking about wicking fabrics there are two really different ideas that they conflate and so one of them is a literal wick and this would be like you know what is a wick it's like this bit of fabric that draws oil up into a lamp right Mm -hmm. so it actually pulls water from all directions and distributes it the other kind are draining fabrics and so those are fabrics that don't hold on to the water very well and it falls it literally drains through the fabric and falls out the hem and um, that's what you want if you're getting really, really wet. And that said, really, this is a very specific thing. Like most of the time I wear pretty normal base layers like anyone else. It's only if you're going to be like getting continuously wet and not in a situation where you're already wearing a dry suit or something like you're rafting that this actually matters. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a pretty niche. fringe. It's niche. <laughs> Still very interesting to the gear nerd in me. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting. That's yeah. We got geeky enough. Look, we actually like back in two thousand six and seven. We actually like took little like ten inch by ten inch swatches of different fleece fabrics and hung them from scales and like after soaking them and watched the rate at which they got lighter as the water drained out and then evaporated. And um, so um, that said, I really think for most people, either try to find a situ- find a way to not get that wet or have some kind of dry suit. Yeah, but I can imagine that's, that's how a good too. on a uh, <laughs> you know a long distance adventure such as such as what is it circumnavigating or walking around the Seward Peninsula um, in western Alaska that uh, a dry suit adds considerable weight well, to it, your or or they're going to fail before you're done and yeah. so right. like if you have a long long if you're looking at months in really wet conditions I think it becomes very relevant there then because your your membrane is going to fail. Yeah, um, and the Seward Peninsula, it was actually nice because the majority of that trip was actually below freezing, and so we didn't really have to worry about it right. until near the end when things were almost broken up. But in that case, still, we were... It's one thing to be planning to get wet all the time or actually the weather and that it's very dry there and it's very sunny. We just wanted to be prepared in case we fell through the ice. We weren't and we never did. do it. We never did. I mean, did. we were skiing yeah. on this ice and it's amazing. Like skis, they distribute your weight so much. Right. Like this ice, I mean, if, to picture it, like it is the sketchiest ice you can imagine. And it's ocean. And it, on the ocean, yeah. And this is open ocean. 
I mean, it's open Not really, because I mean, the sea ice isn't you sound, all the way. So oh, it's in the sound. You're yeah, and, and then you're on Bering Strait. So, uh, okay. like, the most open would be the early part, where okay. we were on the south side of the Seward Peninsula, because then you're really looking out across the Bering Sea. Okay. As you get into Bering Straits and stuff, it's less so. And actually, okay. the way the weather systems work there is there's these big, cold, high pressures um, in the Arctic, and they squeeze out through the Bering Strait. And so they flow down. They're like rapids coming out of the mountains, down out of the mountains on the south side. Really, really crazy windy. When you get to the north side, things get way more calm, like dramatically, way really? more than we expected even. Like just all of a sudden, you know, the the snow is fluffy and loose. And yeah, it's I mean, totally different. Actually, the problem... We, we were prepared for thin ice, but we never had a problem with that. I mean, usually when the ice was thin, like the kids were actually literally already in the boat with their life vests on, so they were not even going to fall through. But the the actual difficulty we ended up having to deal with on that trip was those winds that funneled out of the mountains when we were skiing along the south side because they would just create these super cold ground blizzards through pretty much any notch. Yeah, you could be standing in calm air and you're look like we learned like the first time we saw this we didn't know what it was, but after a little while we learned we we standing like it's completely calm. Like you could drop a feather and it would fall to the ground and you can see a mile ahead there's a valley opening and it's just white and there's just this wall of white because there's a ground blizzard, this just river of cold dense air flowing down and in tearing snow up off this super hard packed ground and uh, we had one spot like that and we like we're like okay we got to go into this and we like strapped the kids into the rafts we were using as as sleds and and uh and just like hunkered in and like it's only half a mile and then you're out the other side and it's calm again (laughs) it's really strange what kind of winds talking about i would guess those winds weren't quite as strong as we expected like we were looking at um i think we experienced some winds that were definitely over 40 knots um we did that time i think it was a little it was below that would be my guess yeah and i don't know how good my estimates are so no but that's significant it was really friggin windy yeah you know we we had mm, i don't know you want more stories like you were asking for yeah absolutely so okay so so our our learning experience on the wind is we we left Nome and we had like a couple weeks or whatever to get to uh to tell her and um and uh, we ran into this native guy, uh, Brian Wayavana, um, out just outside of Nome. And he was snow like, machining. Um, snow machining, yeah. And he was like intrigued by our, our trip. And we just talked to him for a few minutes. And then we're gone for like, it's been 10 days. But we, I don't know if we told him or he found out some other way. We had a tracker going. So he, he was watching us actually. And um, we were skiing along the coast and it had been generally pretty calm. The weather had been you know, mostly above zero a little bit, you know, and things were just pretty straightforward, but we'd gotten now beyond where you see really snow machine tracks or anything. There's like one like old set of tracks that were mostly blown over and there was this shelter cabin. So in a lot of areas in the Arctic, the, the local native communities have built these cabins for if someone has problems, they just can go in and, and shelter. And so we're like, okay, we'll go up and camp next to that, that shelter cabin. We get there and we're kind of setting up and Brian Wayavana shows up on a snow machine. He's been watching us and he's like, oh yeah, you know, this next place he could point out, it's like six miles ahead of us. This is Woolly Lagoon and it's really, really windy there. And we're like, oh yeah, thanks. Like that's, that's appreciated. You know, um, it's kind of incredible that he'd come this whole way to tell us this, but you know, they're pretty, uh, underspoken folks and, he kind of he kind of left at that. We mentioned we were kind of going a little slower than we expected, and if anyone was out that way, and we might bum a little food off them, that would be awesome. But we really didn't like 
I, we didn't like say we desperately need food or anything. We we're just like, oh yeah, we're we're just a little little nervous about our supply. If anyone's out here, we might bump some food off them. And then and then he headed away. And so the next day, it was still it was pretty nice. And we took off skiing. We we're skiing out across this bay, and then we get to to where there's all these there's a little fish camp there, the the King Islanders, and we're skiing past those. And the winds, sure enough, it's starting to pick up, and it's getting late in the day. And we're like, okay, we probably should find a place to camp. And there's not much as far as a wind block around here. But there was this barge that was shipwrecked on the beach, and it kind of there's this big drift behind it. We're like, well, I guess we can kind of carve into this drift maybe somewhere. And we went up, and we like, it's just like rock hard. And we're like looking around, and I'm I was walk, I had my skis off. I'm walking along this, the top of this barge, and I fell through a drift. Like I literally just like total pit trap. Like didn't expect it at all. Fortunately, did not hurt myself. Um, I fell into uh, a fuel hold um, of this uh, of this uh, shipwrecked barge and we're like well i guess we'll camp down here and so we uh we uh <laughs> wait okay i'm trying to picture what this looks like well, so when you say you fell through so like, like it's a hatch it's like, like yeah. a, it's a, a hatch with like a ladder down it that was part of a boat under snow and the whole boat yeah. is pretty I mean, much under the, the like snow there's just a few little, little metal out. pieces sticking out and so basically you have this kind of medium small you know, metal walled room that's like completely eight feet by twenty feet or something like yeah. that. Yeah, thin one. It's actually yeah, it was pretty big, wasn't it? Because it had yeah. it was it's pretty not small. long. It's not. It's <laughs> yeah. not tiny. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It was bigger so than the tent, and it and it has this hatch going down into it, and the whole thing is presumably beached, but you can't tell exactly where the line of the beach is, and it's all because it's just beach and ocean are sort of continuous. Because yeah. the ocean is frozen. It's frozen. Yeah, it's so all frozen. for as far as you can see. Yeah, yeah. So it's and just it's snow. It's just snow, and then the snow is like over the top of this thing and then yeah so we're down in this belly this dark belly of this metal you know hold on the ship with the, just the little hatch leading up into the air yeah, we, we set up our wood stove with the the chimney going out of the out of the hatch and we were cooking on that and stuff and and it's dark you know i mean this is it's late enough in the winter it's light for a lot of time but it's into the end of the night and then like all of a sudden someone like sticks their head in our hatch like and it's brian and 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 his friend and they've come all the way from gnome and um carried food for us oh um and like had this just epic trip over the overland to get this out to us and and uh so we visited with with them for a little while but they were going back that night and we later found out they had carburetor problems it was this huge adventure but yeah they gave us they gave us food and uh, we hunkered in there and um the next morning we got up and, and I was going for firewood. So I climbed out and it was smoke and wind. Like it was, I don't know. It was, I think it was probably starting to break through gale there. Um, and, um, and I'm out and there's the top of the beach, like the ridge of the beach is blown clear. And that's where you can find wood. Um, so the, uh, driftwood, you're talking about driftwood. driftwood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There yeah there's no trees. The yeah. yeah, no yeah. Trees. Um, and I was, I was looking, I was picking up wood and I was looking up at the mountain and there's this, this, sizable mountain there and there's fog on the mountain i'm like there shouldn't be any fog it's like bright sun and blowing like crazy and i'm like why why is there fog on the mountain and uh and i'm like kind of i'm looking down too right so i'm not just looking continuously at that and i finally figure out oh that fog that fog is moving towards me you know that's not fog that's a ground blizzard and like within like i don't know 15 20 minutes like it was just white out conditions across there and that so we camped there again that night 
And, um, and by the time that night was done, it's kind of cold. It's much colder than our tent because it's all steel walls. So there's no way we could heat the space up with our stove. We're like, yeah, we're really getting tired of being cooped up in this, like, you know, metal hole, basically like a fuel tank. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and so we decided we were going to make the move just a short distance, literally like quarter mile back to Woolly Lagoon. We'd seen one building there's there. there's cabins. Yeah, there was a cabin and we had stopped briefly just to tie the door shut because it had blown open. And we we're like, well, we can go in and kind of clean up the snow. And we'd seen that a fox had gotten in the food a little bit in there. So we can clean that place up and then, and then uh, you know, camp there. Um, and uh, in order to make that move, I don't think I, I, I don't know that I've ever experienced another time when it was like, it, this is the kind of cold where you just feel like if you screw up, you'll just die. Like it was just screaming wind we tied the kids into the rafts as sleds and like i had already forgotten uh, you had kids the whole time (laughs) (laughs) okay so the kids are with you Uh, we had to ink we had like we put these like kind of little pilings in we dug them into the snow in order to tie the rafts in place while we got the kids in there and we put all our gear it's like so they're like all in their sleeping bags like all their winter gear and like everybody's sleeping bags Um, and we just have this tiny distance to go but the wind is broadside and like the the rafts are trying to lift off and it was it was really it was really scary and it was incredible to see that that weather in action um and so that was kind of our like, okay, now we're kind of oriented to what this this um, setting can do and what what can happen here. And uh, and so and then we were much more on guard after the, after, after that. that. You know, we would just be very careful because actually it's very location dependent. And so if you camp where the coast is steep instead of where the valleys come out, and we just tried to like time our days such that we could we had get weather forecasts too. So something like like especially the southerly storms that are warm, we could those were. Pretty pretty clear in the forecast but the drainage winds were not real obvious and um it took us a while to kind of figure out when and to so expect then those. we would go and and make sure if there was a chance of those winds we would just be camping somewhere where the steep bluffs are right up against the ocean because then you would get just vastly less wind because that would just block the wind. the wind would be going over the top of the bluffs yeah, if it's yeah. coming i mean off. it was still windy yeah. but it wasn't well, and, and it didn't even really extent. go over the top as much as you might expect because it really was i mean if you picture like if that wind was not air but water it like pools up on the north side of the ranges and it just runs down all the valleys and yes there'd be some wind if you were standing on top of that bluff but the strongest winds were in these valleys where it would just be yeah, this super turbulent, violent wind coming out of those. And then, of course, you know, we're telling the stories, and so we tell stories of that part, but it, it almost makes it sound like the whole trip is just, like, trying yeah, to survive in this, like, <laughs> awful environment. But there were, like, tons of times when we're just, like, tooling along the sea ice, and it's bright and sunny, and the kids are looking at all the piles of ice and deciding that they look like different kinds of monsters and climbing up and... You know, my daughter was four at the time and big into Frozen would like pretend she was Elsa and climb on top of the ice and sing. And so <laughs> I want to make sure to have those stories in there, too. It's like it's not well, it's, just it's an about amazing suffering. Landscape. I mean, what you, it, it's also when you go to those places where things do suck sometimes almost always they're also incredible like they're just like the 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 wilderness aesthetic is 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 uh, amazing these are these huge huge cliffs into the frozen ocean in this case and um yeah really cool cool areas <laughs> I, i'm trying to imagine what that would be like how did you get into winter backcountry travel or wilderness travel it's just it's kind of we like haven't done a ton of it compared to yeah. some people compared to someone like Bjorn who does almost all his trips in the winter. We did it when we 
walk from Seattle to... Yeah, he does. He does lots of trips, but he does many winter trips, yeah. more than us. He talked quite a bit about his winter trips yeah, yeah. when we talked. Yeah. yeah, but when we went from Seattle to the Aleutians, well, it just took long enough that winter has to be included, right? It took us a whole year, and so that was kind of our first, you know, we'd done some things that were sort of attempting to prepare us for that, but it was the first time we'd really done a very long thing in the winter. And then after that, you know, I'd sort of always had it in the back of my mind that, oh, it'd be fun to do, you know, winter stuff again. I think I pretty much didn't want to do it until the kids were at least a little older because I'd had, you know, changing diapers when it's like zero out kind of sucks. That yep. sounds pretty bad. <laughs> so yeah, we, we did have things like older. diarrhea emergencies, like on we, the we sea ice in to, like you know, eight layers of clothes and it's we, zero. We did out. have occasional <laughs> things like, like that, but not every not, day. Yeah, like if a kid had rarity, diapers. but yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, an unfor- unfortunate experience. Definitely. Um, um how, did, yeah. Did you carry diapers, like dirty diapers with you as well as clean? Well, we did. So the the system we used when, so like. When they were little, um, yeah. You know, most extreme, we did one trip in 2011 when they were both in diapers and we spent two months out on Malaspina Glacier. And there we, the system we had, and and for the later trips, like the Cook Inlet trip, we, it's their G diapers and there are, I think, a couple other similar things where they have a cloth outside, they have this rubber liner, and then they have this uh, compostable insert. So you carry like this bale of inserts that are bulky, but not very heavy. And then most of the time you don't have to wash to the outside. And so we would, we were doing laundry on Malaspina with two kids in diapers about once every two weeks. And I'm sure most people would think our cleanliness standards were, (laughs) were, were lacking, (laughs) but still, you know, it is possible to go that low. Um, So are you just burying the compost? Sometimes we burn them, but yeah, mostly bury bury them. Or the, um, the inside is like this, uh, (laughs) this, uh, (laughs) the, 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 like the part that actually absorbs it is is like this fibrous gel stuff and that you know if you if you take if you can kind of just open one end and just fling that in like if it's pee you can just fling that into the water and and it dissolves immediately and um and so then you just have this little bit of papery stuff that you can burn or bury somewhere gotcha okay what were those called g diapers G yeah. diapers. The they actually G. sponsored us. Yeah, we were, we we were sponsored. We did it. We did it. I think it might have been the first, like, you know, wilderness glacier expedition ever sponsored by a diaper company. So, <laughs> <laughs> and what was the nature of that trip? Were you mostly camping or were you? Were you that was, it had we a lot of, we, we went about 100 miles over you two did? months. So, think about how slow that is. That's you, really slow. Very slow. Um, <laughs> we did that because we had the, the two kids at the time, neither was capable of walking any distance our son was a little over two and our daughter yeah, he, was he would toddle along for short distances sometimes when we started so we had basically two kids that we had to carry we also had in that case unlike many of our other trips we had two months but you know how Hig was saying earlier oh you just like every 10 days two weeks you make it somewhere you can get more food well that really wasn't possible in that location because there's nowhere to pick up food on Malaspina Glacier and we were moving so slowly. We did have caches. So we but had... We did, we did start with like three weeks of food or something. Um, which That's is a lot. Insanely, brutally heavily, heavy. Yeah. Like, How many I think, pounds was that? Do you remember? Well, I remember when we got off the plane in the Samvar Hills, which are like this island out in the middle of this glacier. Um, really, really uh, phenomenal place. But um, we... I, I think we had... We only went like a quarter mile to where we camped for a week or something. But when we did that quarter mile, we did it in one shot with, I think, 100 and 
190 pounds of including two kids you know oh with the two kids included yeah. uh, but that's distri- distributed between that's all our you. gear all our you know the two kids all the food yeah. all right so the food weight was somewhere in the ballpark of 70 80 pounds something like that so i mean that's part of adjusting the trip to you know the capabilities of the kids at the time and in that case the capabilities of the kids were pretty much nothing and so what we did ended up doing is we'd set up a base camp and we'd spend like a week or a few days and we'd do lots of hikes from that base camp and then we'd move base camps and moving base camps kind of sucked it was like a pretty brutal day when we did that but then we'd or set we would up even ferry one. stuff in some cases i was gonna say did so, you ever like watch the kids and let hig go ahead and yeah, ferry yeah. we did, yeah, that we did some of that yeah yeah, yeah absolutely that could but be we, efficient you know it's i mean part of why we picked that spot i mean you know we were we didn't know what we were doing you know we've never done never done a trip with kids like that you know at that age before because it keeps changing but uh but part of our inspiration there was this was just a really complex and dynamic landscape so any one spot you sit down for a while there you're going to have some amazing experiences and see some incredible things and uh and you know like what well so this is um it's kind of like the last glacier that is like the glaciers that in the last ice age filled uh, i mean in alaska you think about like Tustamina lake or something like that it's a piedmont glacier comes out of the mountains and spreads out in this essentially massive pool of ice it's 40 miles 40 miles wide and like 15 miles extending from the mountains to the ocean. And, um, and it is, um, changing really rapidly. It's melting. It's, it's in a very, very temperate climate. And the reason it's such a big glacier is not that it's cold. It's that there's a huge amount of precipitation. And so the snow building up like Mount St. Elias is one of the feeders of this. And, um, the, uh, so you've got this glacier kind of pulling away off this landscape really, really, um, productive landscape you also have forests that are growing on top of the glacier and the glacier is melting out from under them you literally have like crevasses in forests with two foot diameter trees um i feel like we need a lesson on glaciers here really quick (laughs) as you describe this so let's back way up because i'm curious i'm sure some other people are kind of scratching their heads too listening so first of all where is the malaspina glacier so that's like sometimes it's called the lost coast it's the chunk of the gulf of alaska that's kind of between southeast alaska and prince william sound right where it's just pretty not very many bays or harbors or anything just mostly you know beaches exposed to the open ocean and the mountains are like almost right up to the coast are really big mountains in the saint elias range and so then you have these really massive glaciers malaspina specifically is pretty close to yakutat yeah it's, it's like across yakutat right? bay yeah west Roughly. but yeah oh west is it um yeah the, the, the coast is pretty much east west at that oh, point okay and um and uh so it's across yakutat bay there and actually if you went back 100 years uh then malaspina glacier is 60 miles wide and includes icy bay so really? icy bay was part okay. of malaspina glacier when people were mapping it you know a How little long over ago? 100 years, a little over 100 years ago really um so you know like uh, uh, uh um, russell as uh, uh he did actually it was the first national geographic sponsored expedition in 1891 and he wanted to try to climb saint elias and he didn't make it up that but he mapped the glacier and like his map it's like yeah it's icy bay was full and there was this massive calving front into the open pacific wow um and so one of the things so yeah this is the geologist talking here but um (laughs) one of the things i think is 
really exciting about that place um, is that we're looking at that happening again with what will, I guess, be the future Malaspina Bay or something like that. As um, that glacier recedes. Yeah. And it, the, the glacier, it's in some places over a thousand feet below sea level underneath that glacier. So it's got this huge hole that it's filling there. Okay. Hold on. Go back. How do you, how do we know that? Like how do we uh, measure? It's uh, ice, ice penetrating ice radar. Is the, ice penetrating yeah, radar. Um, so you can, so that penetrates ice and then bounces back on yep, hard They ground. get a reflection off the bottom. And and it's, it doesn't work if it's like super crevassed and stuff, but out like in ice sheets and, and the lower part of the Malaspina, I mean, really go on Google Earth and try to find that spot because it's, I, I can't really describe it. It's, it's a very, it's not like this valley with this glacier filling it. It's the glacier spilled out of the valley. spills out. It's like really wide yeah, it's yeah. a big flat. round Yeah, yeah. It looks like it oozes, but yeah. it's frozen. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it does, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and uh, so that whole area, so there's a seven-mile section of the coast there where um, it used to be called Sakegi Bluffs. So you'd be taking a boat along there and you'd see this, not like a bluff, like actually expo- exposed dirt necessarily, but these like really steep hills with little bits of exposed dirt and all this and all forested. Well, that's all glacier and it has, it's no longer really bluffs. That's melted down. And, um, and now there are actually waterways opening up behind it. And one in particular we refer to as Sitkegi Lagoon. When we were there the first time in 2007, it was like this tiny little lagoon with this connection to the ocean. We were there in 2011 and it had grown several times bigger and I was just there last year uh, year before last actually um, in 2016 and it's becoming huge yeah the basic story is because as that opens up it starts out lakes but it's you know the the actual level of the ground below the ice is deeper than the ocean and so if it opens up more the ocean flows in and it makes it into a bay instead of land yeah, you've got completely exposed coast, and it has boulders, so it's somewhat stable in that way. But in this area, the seven-mile section, there's no the rivers don't really drop any significant amount from where they're leaving the ice. And I've gone out with literally like a string and a stick and a rock and measured the depth in there, and it's 150 feet deep, just a little more than a stone's throw from the the inside of the little strip of moraine that forms the beach. So it's it's already breached in well one place really decisively, um, but there are other places where extreme storms do reach the ice. And um, and as, as that opens up, then there's every reason to think that will become a bay, mo- bay mouth there. As not a geologist, <laughs> it was just really neat to kind of almost as you're walking across this glacier, you have this feeling that you've gone back into the ice age and you can like stand on these hills that are surrounded by a sea of ice and like look out across and then you can spend days on like these sort of highway like ribbons of you know rock ridges and and smooth white ice just pretty flat just traveling down towards the ocean and then there's ice caves and then there's these super cooled springs because the water comes from really deep under the ice and it's pressurized but it's actually colder than freezing so it'll like shoot up and then it'll freeze when it gets to the top and kind of make these sculptures and so it's just it's aesthetically a really interesting place too it's kind of just bizarre and all all these there's a lot of landscapes there where you're like oh i didn't know anything like this existed on earth and there's also um, a big chunk of what's practical we wanted to find somewhere that seemed like it would keep us entertained but that without making a lot of miles because we knew we couldn't make a lot of miles with the kids that age and so you know 
we can do a lot, but it's never true that you can just do everything with the kids. It's just you can probably do all kinds of interesting things. You just have to think, okay, what are my limitations and what are my interests? And the world is so big. There's going to be plenty of things that fit that intersection. I'm trying to take in all the things you guys are saying. (laughs) And it's like there's like this flashing does not compute (laughs) image. (laughs) So, okay. This is going to sound dumb. How do you get on the glacier? Well, in this case... In that case, you walk on. They they can land a plane in the gravel like in basically a chunk of land that's like an island in the ice that's like surrounded by glacier. And this is how you were saying, Hank, that there's forest on top of the glacier yeah this in this case is it's this not on of top those? of the glacier this is actually an island so it's it's surrounded by glacier and there's mountains like three thousand feet of relief but below um, it is land no uh, yeah just land underneath so but the like glacier, glacier flows all the way around flowing it. around it like and a river. it's got forests on not a lot of, well it's got a lot of alder forest but it's even got some spruce forest on it and it's got bears and wolverine we saw wolverine there how big is it's it? got fish in it like uh, dolly varden live in these and we do not uh, know how they got there we I don't wonder. know that's a very interesting question but uh but uh, it's about 10 miles wide and maybe six miles uh, deep kind of um how i'm so confused right now how (laughs) (laughs) just just came in the room after doing kid duty and maybe some food duty hey babe um your mic is on i just have to turn it up if you want to join us so they did a trip on the Malaspina Glacier, which is just outside of Yakutat, and they're t- describing the landscape, and I'm totally befuddled. I, I mean, it is kind of, I mean, that's one of the things I love that's, about it. It's, it's, I, I mean, we can tell you what it looks like, but it's I mean, kind it of really hard to believe like it exists. It's like a 10-mile island of land that's surrounded not by water, but by glacier. Moving, panel. like fast-moving ice. Well. What? It, how fast is fast-moving ice? Like at the Seward Throat, which is the fastest-moving part, I think... I'm trying to remember the number, but I believe it was five to eight meters a day. So that's like uh, oh, wow. 15 to 25 feet a day. Um, that's, that's not actually right we moving, moving. Well, like it's you not could that watch far from it move. move. Uh, if, if you, you had the right, enough, like if, the if you had, oh yeah, like yeah. if you had a, like a telescope and you sat on the ground and you just pointed at one spot, I bet you, you could actually watch, you could it watch it in real time. You would actually get a sense well, of motion. Well, that's like a, a foot an hour, 25 feet. Right. Roughly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to have a, a long, t- you know, a long telescope, but it, it, that's, so this is they're basically the, what you would usually call Malaspina Glacier is the Piedmont part, this pool of ice out at lower elevation. And it's fed by two big glaciers, um, the Seward oh. Glacier. And so it's the Seward Throat that I was just talking about that's really fast. And the Agassiz Glacier, which, uh, or Agassiz, that comes from Mount St. Elias, which is, if you measure it in terms of like, I'm standing on top of this mountain, how far down is the ground around me? It's far and away the tallest mountain outside the Karakoram and the, and the Himalayas in anywhere in the world. If you measure absolute ele- elevation, of course, Denali is taller, but Denali is sitting with its base at 2,000 feet. St. Elias drops to negative 300 feet in 11 miles. It goes into a fjord. I'm taking it all in. Okay. <laughs> so St. Elias is so one of the tallest mountains mm-hmm. in relation to the the kind of like... Well, what you, what there's you always the this question, level, right? Not ground level. If but there's this question you might have. I'm, uh, it's uh, like a uh, canyon. It's like measuring a canyon. It's, yeah, yeah, or it's, it's like, like sometimes where are you people from? Yeah. say yeah. the Hawaiian Islands are the tallest mountains because you measure from the base of the floor of the ocean. They're really tall, uh, but yep. they don't oh. stick up very high above the ground. So I guess the, the question is right. whether you're looking at 
how high in the air is the top of the mountain or if you were to like there was out a, all these mountains and set them next to each other which is like the larger structure which one blows you away the most there there was a there there was a, a mountain climbing geek that got tired of this debate and like went and like did a bunch of calculus and stuff and <laughs> he came up with this idea of spire spire measure or something like that and so it's a it's like the the like concept is you're standing on top of the peak and you're looking around you at how steep and how far it is to get to to the ground and you're actually including everything so if it's kind of high over here and low over there you're including all of that and averaging it together averaging and spire being a vertical yeah. rock or point or and yeah. so by his measure which i mean uh, as far as like the holy crap factor i think it's the best thing out there saint elias stands alone in the western or yeah, the Western Hemisphere. Really? Um, and uh, um, and it is incredible to see it. Like that's, I mean, I haven't been on top of it and uh, I've been at the bottom of it and looked up and it's it's an incredible, incredible piece of rock. And really that's what matters. I mean, we don't actually, you know, we weren't, <laughs> we didn't really actually care and I still don't, you know, all the different ways to calculate which mountain might be the biggest. It's just a very impressive landscape. Yeah. But it has the holy crap factor. Yes. It, yes. Yep. Yep. Good, yeah. There, there, there's someone who did the math and they confirmed that it's holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> Jess, do you want to do a mic check real quick? I'm back. Keep going. I settled the kids in. They're playing Legos. They ate a cantaloupe and I made salsa. Good job. Okay. That way if you have I'm going to step away for say, one moment. Yeah. Go for it. I got real tired. <coughs> Yeah, I started drinking beer. Um, Hig and Aaron started told me about um, a drink in Peru that involves blending a live frog. We did, really? It, it used to in the past. Oh, it they used to in the past. They they well they it's still in black market situations might involve that, but they banned it because the frog was going extinct. It still yeah. involves blending beer, milk, raw eggs, fruit, grains whatever else they feel like throwing in there did the frog it's a health drink yeah oh a health drink i was gonna say did the like frog a, was it a poisonous it's a protein frog shake that, i would it, hope that it's would not be, a poisonous that'd be frog, on a different but I don't black know. market or some sort of a um, i don't know because we were told by the folks that lived there that they they were cracking they'd crack down on it because it was um endangering the frogs we were also told by someone in bolivia that you can still find it if you want it in in the black market but <laughs> yeah i was catching jess up on the frog smoothie yeah oh that's sorry i'm glad it was we noteworthy got we got we got that one covered that's good yeah <laughs> i don't want one would you ever try one <laughs> probably not i was trying to figure out the proportions of frog or the potential different flavors of frog i might have to go to if Peru i was offered soon. one by a host like someone's like sure. oh hey yeah i would totally try it it's kind of on par with the monkey brain thing in Temple of Doom, though. Oh, yes, I don't right. know. That's a little bit weird. <laughs> anyway. Before they, we really knew about prions. Before we knew prions, about... The, the, prions. The weird, like, proteins um, that start replicating themselves. And yeah, the reason it's not the reason a very we don't, good idea to eat brains. Yeah, brains is maybe not the best thing to have on your diet. Oh, fill so. me in. Maybe I don't know about Well, the this. whole mad cow design. The, the mad, oh, okay, mad cow that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, Does this yeah. have to do with mad cow Those are prions. It's, like, totally bizarre. It's, like, not life. It's not a disease. It's even less life than than viruses. It's just proteins It's weird have a way that they fold that makes them do their job like the specific shape they can't do their job if they're not the right shape and so you can take a protein that's the exact same amino acids but it's a different shape and in the case of a prion you put it next to one that's like folded up the right way the prion will basically induce it to conform to be folded up the wrong way that 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 no longer functions that no longer functions 
and then and that so then and then that spreads. protein can do that to the next one. And so it's it's like it's a chain self replication, but it's it's, but it's way not further. Life. It doesn't have yeah. DNA of any sort. It's not. I mean, you generally just, wouldn't call viruses life either, but they're a lot more lifelike. They have a whole you know complex set of molecules that mm-hmm. have a they're they have evolving a in this way, and so they have a genome. But uh, but yeah, this is not even that. It's pretty interesting. I'm gonna bow out of this one and go back to the glacier. <laughs> yes, even though Abe <laughs> does like to eat every bit of the animal. yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> like. It's not that I couldn't try to get my head around this one, but categorically speaking, I don't jump around very easily from mm-hmm. one to category to another. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, like, <laughs> we don't need to do molecular biology. Yeah, right I was going to say, <laughs> this, is, this is a podcast with a PhD in <laughs> yeah, geology and, and a master's yeah. in molecular, molecular biology. Okay, this is where it goes sometimes. <laughs> um, okay, we were talking about Malaspina Glacier, which I was just describing to you, babe, as uh, being outside of Yakutat, and it's, what, 60 miles wide, roughly? 40, yeah. Oh, sorry, 40. It was 60 it was and 1900. 1900. Yeah. And if you went back 800 years, then it included Yakutat Bay, too. So, oh, wow. So it's it's been, you know, Yakutat Bay opened up first, okay. and uh, then Icy is, Bay opened up, and now next will be Malaspina Bay or whatever you want to call it. Maybe St. Yeah. Elias Bay. I don't know. We don't know what it'll be called. Um, we don't not, get to name yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Who does? <laughs> I don't know. In a USGS? case of the news, well, it generally, I think the way it works is if something starts getting used, then they can kind of like talk. There's a process where they can get it submitted. I think you should stop right now. I don't think you should assume that you don't get to name it. I think you should just name it now. <laughs> put out the word that you've <laughs> already <laughs> named the, uh, the soon. We to need to be come bay. up with a really good idea. I wouldn't want it to be like yeah. Well, that, nev- that like all you need dirty to do is get place, it used. Like, <laughs> You never that's, know that's what will catch work. on. We do call you it Sakagi Lagoon, but of course the formation of the lake will, or the bay will destroy Sakagi Lagoon. So, um, okay. because it is merely the tiny little mouse bite that will, that will eventually become this giant bay. I think that it's possible that, you know, if you're taking a cruise ship into Alaska in maybe 20 years or something, you would be cruising along the Gulf of Alaska coast and see an island float by that had trees floating on it or growing on mm. it. Like yeah, standing possible. trees. I think that is possible, In yeah. 2030, Totally, throwing that out there. I'm not modeling it. I'm just like, yeah, something, something. you know, it, it's 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 to moving that way, steady. To be a geologist, that would be a lot of equations and math before you would make that. And there attempt. probably would be some BS in there somewhere, too, yeah. because it's really hard <laughs> so to model those things. So you're just jumping straight to the BS. Yeah, I just jumped straight to the BS. That's fine, <laughs> but I'm, uh, this is fun. So you, this is because you're saying that there are, there is land mass and trees growing on top of the glacier. Yep, so yep. those would eventually calve off with the well, when you and float by. One of the things that happens when you have a glacier that's below wa- water table, so like the ocean, but it could be a lake too. This happens with lakes. And it starts melting at the front. Now, if you imagine it's getting thinner and thinner from the top, right? But the bottom is staying the same. There's a point at which uh-huh. it floats off the bottom. And, um, because of the weight is reduced or what? Yeah, because you're reducing the amount that's up above. Right. Like Which you, is it, Eventually, it you can't, it can't get lower because it'll just float up to match that. Right. Um, right. And it's uh, weight. Is it? Am I wrong? Let's just Tell like an yeah. ice cube in the it, water. Ten yep. percent of it's on the top. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so if the top melts you, off. It's going. So if you have an ice cube that's floating, cube. it's like half in the water. Right. Yeah. It's still planted on the bottom because it's it's heavy enough to to like to uh, that the buoyancy doesn't lift it. But if it keeps melting off the top and the bottom isn't going away, eventually it gets down to where just ten percent is above it, and then it tries to go less, but. It won't because it the, won't. the bottom just pops up. Pops up. Gotcha. So at that point, you don't get calving in the sense of like my- crashing, like kaboom, yeah. and up, something goes my- into the water. Ooh. 
They're making a Lego mm. thing. Uh, rubber band and string. Well, I would look on the disorganized shelves of kid craft supplies over there and see if you guys have any. Remind Hazel that she has hair bands that will work for a rubber band. Oh, that's mm. true. Latria yeah. does too, probably, if she wants I, to take I out her braids. I offered that Cat might could talk into the microphone. He told me and on he the way refused. here. He said, <laughs> pretty no, adamantly. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted I him to say him. hi. It might ask you something with a microphone. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's okay. Next time, huh, buddy? Cat Mai. <laughs> okay. The, uh, so yeah. So so I understand the concept. So instead of it coming off, it might there. just pop up. Yeah, and, and then and, when, and you see if you Google Earth a bunch and you look at these at at glacial lakes, you'll occasionally see one that it's not. It's not like all this scattered, shattered ice. There's just big sections of the glacier floating away. Yeah, and that is when that happens. And so. You combine that with if the mouth of if the mouth of what will eventually be a bay opens up enough, then I mean probably it's not going to be deep enough to float a, uh, an island bearing trees on it out there. But I like to imagine it might be that deep, and it's possible. Theoretically possible. Theoretically possible. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, Malaspina, one of my favorite places in the world. Um, if you were going to name the bay, what would you oh, name it? Man. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but I—it's I, something that something I—I I, I could think about. Would you be there's creative, the or would you yeah. just go with like Malaspina or? Well, I mean, it, there's a certain—you got to be practical, or it's not going to be used, right? So, see, so if you just come up with something totally random, people will forget it and not use it. Right. So, yeah, um, just look at the names around here. We have outside beach, inside <laughs> beach, <laughs> well, white we rock our, we beach, our, our sandy <laughs> beach. <laughs> we called our um, our trail uh, Tutka backdoor, and I kind of liked it because it's like a little that. like you know, yeah. it's like kind of this you know i think of the back door it's the place where people don't generally go and like it turns out you can go somewhere there but, but unfortunately right? there 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 are i've number of times gotten a certain criticism that re refers to a sexual euphemism um <laughs> which i wasn't thinking of at all but i kind of figured like if that's the way people are thinking of it like they've got that in their head they probably think it's funny or whatever and yeah. that's cool i don't care i mean that's fine and or people um, somewhere people it's, it's hard it. to win with really a name care. you know i don't um, yeah it's not gonna get renamed at this point I don't think it's kind think of so. settled well, in but yeah. it depends on what names people use that's the thing true is that yeah. names, that's true. names are because the mountain right up the hill from us you know I think when you were a kid right somebody came up yeah. with the tradition of hiking high schoolers up there for graduation and it got the name graduation peak at that point which then stuck till today even though there are a couple that people that call it Soldovia Peak, but it's it's pretty solidly graduation peak, and I think probably solidly enough that it would clear the standards the USGS mo uses to. Really, they, they don't they don't know the name yet, but I bet you if someone went through the process, it would it would okay. be it could become official. And you don't think the state state if they adopt it as uh, part of their trail system, you don't think they would change the name? They they've already gone through that process actually. Oh, they have. So they 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 have officially that name is official to them. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, no, they they like it's a whole thing. You have to come up with three candidates and stuff and they were asking and i was like here's the name i'm using whatever i don't care if yeah. you come up with something different but they ended up sticking with that so oh that's mm -hmm. funny um, but were they aware of the uh the I don't connotation know, at all yeah. I, 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 and then I in the specifically office in the government office chuckling <laughs> someone and then other <laughs> names that aren't on any maps you know they sometimes get like 
transmitted person to person with some error rate because I think we have a few different broken knife and maybe more like gunsight mountains around here depending on what gunsight in particular depending well, on what mountain there's another mountains I mean yeah right that would make sense and there was one that's, that's on the see. map as gunsight and it does kind of work for that but yeah. for some reason there are these other two mountains that also I've heard people call gunsight. Uh, but, it's all uh, a matter of perspective. You know, it's not what the mountain looks like. It's what the mountain looks like. Where are you looking with, from? Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> where are you looking from? How does it line up? Oh, man. Did you cover so all would you, would you, uh, all of them? So would you be now? really creative? <laughs> no, we haven't even, like, I would just wander. This is what I do. It's like a, it's almost like a disease. I we can't could, We could pick a different one. Uh, the Illusions. Uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's talk about, what do you want to? I want to hear about the Aleutians. I I guess when I left, you were, yeah, still kind of on the Seattle to the Aleutians. Well, when we came back, we started with the frog smoothie, and then from there, I think we're going to keep returning there aimlessly. Um. (laughs) I kind of nerd out on goofy stuff, and so that one really piqued my interest. So, and I think the boys would love to hear about it too. I guess, like, if I just were going to flat out ask a question Mm -hmm. um, from reading the mud flats and fish camps where you did the journey with the kids just interactions with the natives and mm-hmm. like what that was like and oh, what yeah. you feel like you took away from that i mean i read the book so i kind of guess i know some of the experiences but i'm gonna step out for a moment yeah. while you guys talk expand you know, that maybe a bit yeah i mean we've actually you know ended up walking into native villages not just on that trip but on a lot of a lot of trips in alaska and it's always been a really interesting experience and one of the things that i find interesting is that the people there most people don't do a lot of human powered travel in modern times, but they're not that many generations removed from it. And so when we start talking about places that we've been, you know, the immediate reaction is like, oh yeah, my grandfather used to walk here or there. Or when we were in Cook Inlet and we were coming in on our little pack rafts, people would say, oh yeah, you know, people used to like take off in their little boats and they'd go up to near Anchorage for you know, a big party potluck thing and they'd go with the tide and get there in a few hours. And so, you know, everybody used to do kind they, of they what we were doing, but so. much better. Well, <laughs> you know, and this is, I, I know there's a lot of, uh, a lot of hunters in the audience and like the, it took me years to really appreciate how deep uh, hunting and, and other subsistence activities, but I'd say hunting particularly, how deep that is a part of those cultures mm-hmm. and how in a lot of cases, I think it is the strongest in my perception, I, you know, I don't want to talk for any, you know, anyone else, but mm-hmm. my perception is that that was the single strongest thing that kind of connected them to their culture and to their the past and the way they they mm-hmm. lived in that land. And because of that, they're still out and they're still. You meet a lot of people. I mentioned one fellow when you weren't here, Brian Wavanam, who it's just so great to meet natives like that who spend a lot of time on the land and they know it. I mean, it's a different thing than what we're doing, you know, if they're on a snow machine or whatever, but Mm -hmm. they know and they love that land. And, um, and that's really great. We get, you know, we kind of get, we're usually there. Maybe we'll be there for two or three or four days. Um, and so that's shallow, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't get to know Mm -hmm. the whole community at that. And in that much time, even when we've returned to the same communities and we also like, we're weird and interesting and, um, and often it'll be, someone will invite us in. It's, you know, we often have gotten to stay in, in places, especially so I think we get with to see the children best. because right, yeah. they're, they're all very, oh, most good. of the, 
you know, all of the native villages we've been to are very sort of child friendly child centered kind mm-hmm. of places where you know there's all sorts of kids running around all the time and everybody likes kids and as soon as they see ours they're trying to like stuff their pockets with candy and offer them you know all kinds of things and so it's always been a good experience following on from what Hig said hunting one of the things when we were skiing around the arctic that i think i hadn't quite realized before is you know you hear about the villages up there that on these little sandbars and as the climate is changing the sandbars are eroding the villages are you know in danger and that people are going to need to move of course there's expense in moving but one of the things i didn't realize until i was up there that one of the big problems with moving is the reason they're out there in the first place is the access to that ocean hunting and that Mm -hmm. it's such a cornerstone of the culture and that's what you lose if you move inland Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, it is, you know, because on the face of it, it seems kind of silly. Well, why do you living in a sandbar? Why do you need to live in a sandbar? There's plenty of land that's not, you know, right along the ocean, but it's not then, you know, that huge part of both subsistence and culture is not accessible as soon as you leave the shore. Yeah. And I think moving up here and trying to immerse myself in some of the, you know, local history, it's, you realize how young Alaska is and especially the Anchorage area like just not that long ago you know within the last hundred years or so it's changed so drastically for those mm-hmm. cultures a hundred well, years ago Soldovia was a bigger city than Anchorage there was nobody yeah. there yeah yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and just, I, that was yes. about when Anchorage was being first founded yes yeah. and, it, and, it, and you know, was kind of ago. yeah kind of yeah. yeah and, and Soldovia was kind of that new uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. the big it's place really new yeah. Soldovia people was. would roll like that with to the kids oh yeah I saw a confession he did and and yeah so he He's, he said, missed, missed uh, there a few will be things. gaps. That's there okay, will be yeah. Gaps. Every <laughs> night for the fa- past I know the feeling, couple so. weeks that I'm home, we lay down in the in the RV trailer there, or what, travel trailer. Jessica opens your book, uh, Mud Camps and Fish, no, or Mud, mud Flats, flats and, and Fish Camps, to read to the kids, mm-hmm. and I, within five minutes, I'm passed <laughs> out. Usually with, you know, one of my sons or daughters, the little ones yeah. on either side of me. It's <laughs> true. Yeah, so, like, we, she'll have these conversations during the day about with the, the book, yeah. and I'm just like, uh. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, I'm lost, because I, <laughs> I don't in, remember in any of that. the Anchorage portion was, like, not, I mean, yeah, it's... No I've learned about Anchorage elsewhere too. No reflection on your your oh, writing at all, Erin. <laughs> <laughs> no. What I have heard I is not been very enjoyable. It's just the right time, I right think place it's to more fall about asleep. He'll be gone for a while, and then he comes home, and the kids pile on him at night, and that's just his. Yeah. His oh, I, I know the feeling. Like I would, I, I would lay down with the kids when they were wanting to go to sleep, and like I would just like sack yeah, out. It's just like um, yeah, yeah. No, that one thing but, I was just yeah. thinking about on the the hunting native culture, you know. Uh, and is is like in in um, Tionic where we went through yeah. in that mm-hmm. village. So they traditionally they hunted the beluga in in, in Cook Inlet. I don't know what of, of this is in the book. I don't remember. But uh, mm-hmm. but um, uh, and they can't now because uh, right. in, the belugas are in rough shape. And uh, and the analogy that I don't know for some reason this just kind of developed in my head and it was useful for me. Um, it's like to lose something like that would be like, what if you went into a city and you said, well, yeah, everything's pretty much the same, except, you know, we're going to subtract like coffee shops. Like they just don't exist anymore. Can't exist. There's nothing you can do about it. Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to like innovate them. They're just gone. They've went extinct or, you know, something like that. And that, that like an aspect of life that, 
it's not like they're all starving to death right now, mm-hmm. but there is an aspect of their life and culture that because of what's going on, that really has very little to do with them. Um, that's just gone away. And, um, and well, it's not fair and you know, that's the way it is too. But I it just, to me, it was useful to kind of think of that analogy as um, just, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's useful for having, you know, mm-hmm. to, if you, if you live in this modern life, you become, all these things become parts of your life. And those different species, those different animals that were part of their subsistence hunting, they are part of their lives in a very, very deep way. And I, and I, I mean, I think I'm being pretty fair in saying that. And uh, hopefully if we had, we had some native yeah. elders here, they'd back me up. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it took me a long time to kind of understand that, I guess. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't want to, you know, we've visited a lot of native villages, but as Higgs said, for fairly short times, and I yeah. don't, you Our know, would not like to pretend to be an expert. Or speaking for them. No, yeah. definitely yes. not. Yeah. And and one of the things that's neat, actually, about villages in general, and absolutely applies, I think even maybe slightly more so for native villages, is that they are so individual. Like, mm-hmm. the culture, it, it's culture, and it's also like, I mean, you've got... 500 people in the town and there are five people that are really the most important elders and the sort of cultural leaders there and who those five people for matters and it can be bad sometimes you know mm-hmm. but um but uh you know sometimes you have villages that really don't seem like they're real healthy um but that gives this individuality like each village you go go through it's just a completely different you know different um experience mm-hmm one of the things that Bjorn said when I talked with him was that um, that he and I think Kim had joined him on several adventures was that they often receive very warm welcome to a lot of the remote villages. Mm-hmm. And he thought that a big part of that was the fact that they're arriving. Like, you know, many times in the winter, you, you, you mentioned that a lot of his trips are in the wintertime, but they're kind of arriving out of the landscape on their own two feet or on mm-hmm. a, on a a fat bike and it's like he thought that that just arriving by their own means you know from somewhere in the wilderness it lent them a certain i don't know a welcome that wouldn't have otherwise existed for a white person to just fly into a village and and arrive it's an interesting question i think it's probably is true and you know but on the other hand i've very rarely tried to enter a native village any other way like we've walked or paddled far more often than we've done it any other way well we did once fly into tyone and, and they kicked, kicked out of town yeah yeah years well they, they're a closed village years. so you're not supposed to go there without permission we didn't know oh. that and it was and, years uh, before we yeah that was 2005 so yeah. um but so we knew that when we went back and we caught and got in touch and they were like super uh yeah they were they, we had a great experience yeah um, great so, like, I talk to a lot of different people, and I'm trying to somehow... I get different ideas of rem- of these remote villages. I talk to a lot of guys who are really into the hunting mm-hmm. mindset um, and are more city dwellers, like, based out of Anchorage or Fairbanks or whatever. Right. And there's a fear level on many of them that I've discovered of traveling to some of these remote villages. Yeah, there's fear. Almost like there's threat. I, there. I've encountered both fear and hatred, like fairly, really? very, fairly visceral hatred. And like, Tyonic is kind of an interesting case because it's so close to Anchorage, but it is also isolated. Uh-oh. And their culture, their cultural history, like, um, well, it involves a lot of conflict with white people, and um, and then there's they they were culturally or they were 
they were really important uh, during the flu epidemic and a uh, hundred years ago um, uh, and were kind of where a lot of native communities went uh, when they were depopulated down to like a handful of people. They went to Tyonic and so it combined a lot of the su- survivors. And so they kind of have this, they, they kind of encompass this broader culture and then they happen to be right in the middle of a lot of natural resources that have been exploited in various ways and that hasn't always worked out well for them. Uh, and so there's there's very strong feelings on the Tyonic side and I've also encountered people like talking to people in Anchorage who just immediately like mention of Tyonic and they go off on some things where I'm, oh, well, okay, maybe we won't, <laughs> maybe this is not the topic where we can have a conversation really, you know. Yeah. And really, really hatred towards them. You know? Right. Um, and and then I talked to other people like Bjorn who are like, ah, oh, we've had such warm welcomes we, and been invited have, in like family. We yep. have oh. too. And I think, but then you talk about your friends who are hunters and I do think, you know, there's very different contexts in all these yes, cases. Right. One of the things is, you know, the human powered aspect or for us, you know, a family with kids is about as, you know, non-threatening as you can possibly get you know you're walking in with like some four-year-olds um and is all and they understand that and hunters are also you know they're hunters too too, which means that might be possibly a source of connection but it's also possibly a source of competition right And and i think there's more there is a real concern about that kind of competition because you know, there is a very specific cultural context that all of their hunting goes on. And if someone comes in from outside, even if they're accepting of them as a person, they still aren't part of that culture. And they aren't, it's very likely they won't, you know, they're going to play by white man's rules. Mm-hmm. And um, they won't, I mean, it, it would be it would be a major effort to really like go into a community and say, I'm going to be a hunter here, but I want to be part of of this culture in some way. And there's so many barriers. I don't. I don't and know that that would be ca- possible. In any case, where they're worried about the animal populations in their area for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, they probably are going to be maybe not so yeah. mm-hmm. not so happy to see that competition. But I don't know. I mean, so I don't. I guess that I wouldn't. It's not my experience, but I'm not sure your friends are wrong either because I've always come in in a very different context that we aren't. You know, we're just traveling through. It's not, we're not, not gathering or hunting anything they want. We're walking in, coming with these little kids. Yeah. I guess it's not unsimilar from um, going to North Idaho to a little tiny backwoods logging town at the end of a one-way road and coming in for as an out-of-stater with an out-of-state elk tag in my pocket and receiving some pretty mixed, re, you know, right. receptions from the locals. You know, some are yeah. fairly threatened, like, you well, come well, to shoot our elk. Well, it's yeah. it's one way, it maybe is, maybe would, I don't know, this is just maybe stretching the analogy a little bit, but, uh, but like, when we walk into a place where there's a big re- resource development project and the, you know, the, the people there, like, I mean, we... We try to take our perspective on resource issues in Alaska very broadly and and, and really uh, I don't really look at ground truth tracking as an environmental organization, but we're still more that than we are um, an industry promotion organization, <laughs> definitely. Gotcha. And, uh, gotcha. and 
so I think that there's immediately that lack of trust and um, and that that's that sort of skepticism and unwelcoming sort of uh, point of view that that uh, we have received. Yeah, see, sometimes. we don't get that. Yeah, we don't get it in the native villages. We get it in the, like the mines. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. We live in a, in an interesting space, and I'll just mention this briefly. And we'll move on, but Jess and I, because I feel very. Um, connected to the hunting community, which is traditionally a uh, very conservative, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mindset. Um, and then we also are labeled by all of our conservative fr- friends as, as pretty liberal hippies, which, and so it, we don't really like fall into either. I like, think you'll subculture. find that in Alaska, hunting is common enough that, that it's not yeah. going to politically peg you as right. anything in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. that's been yeah, the that's biggest <laughs> difference is coming up here. I don't have to apologize for hunting to anyone, which we do back home to some of our more liberal friends. I have to like kind of be apologetic, you know, on some level. Um, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, I don't know. It just, it seems to be much more of a blend. There's, it's a different, a different culture up here, um, completely around hunting and fishing and subsistence lifestyle. And also like it permeates both extremes of your political viewpoints. Yeah. Yeah. I know, know, you know, raging liberal and raging conservative hunters, fishermen, et cetera. Yeah. One kind of funny bit of trivia is so, so ground truth trekking is a nonprofit, you know, it's a 501 C three corporation, right? So we have to have a board of directors, me and Aaron Bjorn, the fourth person is David Coyle, who is uh, a hunter who lives in Davis, California, and works at the college. And if you were to pick anywhere in the United States and say, well, that's a pretty liberal place, Davis that's, might be pretty yeah. close to the top of the list. And uh, so he is a very, and, and he's kind of, deliber- I think at some level, deliberately counterculture, but he's not he's not removed. I mean, he is part of that, that liberal culture there, and then but is also a hunter. And I think he kind of sees part of I, I i won't speak for him much but anyway like i think he sees that as part of his thing is he's open about being a hunter and and interested in that that part of existence and uh and in sort of trying to help people understand that that are see see the world you know don't aren't yeah. hunters very much so yeah because i think like when you talk about visiting the native villages and something that i feel aware of like now living up here with the fact that you know especially like the anchorage area and what a hundred years ago might have been like i have a grandma who's in her mid-90s who was up here when she was my age and has always talked about alaska and so i think in her lifetime like roughly 60 years ago like yeah so like in her lifetime this change has happened and but and part of me wonders like if there's any sort of you know possible reparations or like what do you guys do with ground truth that are like maybe even action items that somebody like us who like, I care enough about the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do, I oh, do care enough about being able to fish with my kids and that Abe enjoys hunting. And I wonder what, what we can do to make well, those moves, you know, you know, there are, so, I mean, this isn't maybe the most satisfying answer, but it's uh, somewhat useful maybe is there are places that, um, native communities that have decided to kind of own some of that tourism themselves. And, 
And so like going into a community where there's a lodge that's operated by the, the mm-hmm. local community and recognize that, you know, it might be a little different. Um, but those sorts of things, that's one way that's easy that kind of, I mean, it costs money, but otherwise, mm-hmm. and, and it's kind of contrary to the DIY I idea. Know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, right. you know. Me and Abe don't uh, always. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Um, <laughs> so it's not, not as DIY as yeah, Let's pitch a tent. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so that would be just a simple thing. Well, and also, I mean, it may just, you know, in terms of the politics and such, not necessarily like party politics, but I know when things come up like, you know, villages, you know, want money from the state to, you know, build a new airport or relocate where it's not eroding or something, you always see like, you know, zillions of like comments and all the newspaper articles and you hear people talking like this too like oh why do I have to live out there where it's so expensive why do we need to you know support them anyway and I think it's that kind of attitude that that maybe we need to you know people need to lose that kind of attitude Mm -hmm. and you know I think you know why can should you really tell people they should give up their culture and where they've always lived because it might be a little cheaper for the rest of us if they did Right. I think also, you know, if you were going into a community, you know, it's is try to learn a bit about it before you go there, and um, and maybe even idea like if you're really, especially if you're going, you're really going DIY, and you're going somewhere where mostly people don't go. You know, going to one there are some villages that are incredibly remote in in Alaska, and almost would never see a, a, a visitor. And um, you know, find out a little bit about it. And see if you can find a contact. See if you can find someone that you can you can like meet up with, and like not necessarily like step off the f- the plane in your camo with the rifle over your back and you know head into the woods, but like you know encounter them a little what? bit as people first, and then and then uh, and then you know if you really wanna you know if you really wanna put your money where your mouth is, then ideally you have it open in your mind that if they tell you they don't want you in that area, that you leave instead of hunting, which is I can understand the desire not to do that. I mean I've certainly. It doesn't necessarily like connect with the adults, but we've had a lot of fun going into the schools and giving little like slideshows to the kids Mm -hmm. when we were there about, you know, whatever we've been doing. I got a question. Um, There's a trip that I wanted to do this year and I'm new to pack rafting. Mm -hmm. I bought my first pack raft from from Thor and Sarah. What did you end up getting? I got, well, what he told me on the podcast. You, you got a llama, the, the large, yeah, the, the large the alpaca large series. Alpaca series I, they, they, the they eliminated deck. their confusing terminology. So it's just a large alpaca series. Well, it's now. called the yeah. Dolly Llama I found yeah, out yeah. later. Yeah. I, I literally just called Sarah and was like, that thing, that one you told me on, <laughs> like, want that. last week, just but, just give <laughs> yeah, me yeah. that. You got a, a, a deck and a cargo zip? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. So, um, so anyway, I got that, but I know nothing about using it mm-hmm. really except i went halibut fishing in the bay the other last week oh, i didn't cool. catch anything but i was oh, fishing wh- where exactly just off the spit oh La- okay last yeah, year yeah. is part of the i guess maybe not yeah last year is part of the human powered fishing derby here in soldovia uh i ended up catching a rather like 32 pound halibut from the pack raft with the two kids in it with me <laughs> And it was it was they quite. They told us this <laughs> That's amazing. What it size pack raft was this? It wasn't. I think it was probably the llama, but I don't think it was any bigger. Yeah, was you, it a llama or was it was it the gnu? I think it was just the, the llama. llama. Yeah. That, that I you had. had two kids in that. Yeah, we were kind of squeezed they really in. Clearly, were like it was a team effort. Because <laughs> <laughs> Latuya yeah. had to hold the rods while I paddled. This is Cat-Mai. Cat-Mai. Yeah, yeah. While Took I paddled for paddling. to shore, yeah. and Mom 
wrestle the fish. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like really good adventure. It was. It was a good adventure. So, uh, but I'm very yeah, new to it. Yeah, what was your it. question though? Yeah. yeah. So my question was, I was looking at this route like for a caribou hunt this uh-huh. this fall, late summer, just before guide season starts in August. And I want to do a backcountry hunt. And one of the things that I really want to do in the future is kind of start to blur the lines between like this more long distance trekking adventure mm-hmm. and hunting. So like go for longer periods of time over longer distance and then and then with the with the objective of, of hunting an animal and, and pulling it out. So the pack rafting thing is perfect because right. if I can if I can hike a long ways and really enjoy that time and then shoot something and raft it out. Yeah, because yep, you're not gonna enjoy hiking a real long way with <laughs> yeah, the yeah, caribou. With the, exactly. <laughs> so I was looking at this route um, that I could access off the Dalton Highway and hike, you know, 35, 40 miles and then hit the headwaters of a river and raft mm-hmm. out quite a ways uh, on the North Slope. And then it hit a uh, village where I could take a commercial flight back to Anchorage or Fairbanks. Okay, but I know yeah. nothing about the yeah, yeah. village. So I, my cur- I also showed this to a friend who has some experience packcraft. And I was like, hey, you want to do this trip with me this year? And he looked at it and he's like, eh, it looks like about a three-week trip. And I thought, I was hoping it would be more like 10 days, but okay, <laughs> uh, I'll take your word for it. But uh, just going back to what you were saying, Hig, like how how would you go about trying to find a contact in a village or learn more about a remote village? It's not like you, there's not a lot to learn on Google, you know? Yeah, well, you can yeah, you could try. Yeah, I mean, you say that, but I was yeah. about to say it's kind of hard because that's like, there aren't people who tend to answer their email, so. No, yeah, email's not a good way in my experience, like, um, but you can try calling. You can try calling like the city office, which is you know uh not or even the tribe actually just really? directly calling the tribe um and uh the it's i guess it's a little tricky because you don't necessarily want to go in too official a direction you want to really have a connection with whatever the if they've if yeah. you put them in a position where they're like well give me your official answer then that won't necessarily be the same experience you'd have if you were really talking to someone and so that's kind of one thing is you start asking around and you mm-hmm. say or, well who's um, been here and gotcha um, that sort of thing. Like if you have something, I mean, I think this is, this applies in any time you're going into, you know, a remote place that, you know, is maybe economically depressed. It's like, if you can have something where you're like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to stay at the B and B, you know, that everyone knows the one B and B in town. Like yeah. if you're in Kektovic, go stay at Waldo's arms. And like, um, uh, and then, you know, then you're, you're contributing something at least to the community there. And, uh, yeah. I have, I have something I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. let's hear it. Um, yeah, so, so I was thinking about this when we were in Peru, but this is really relevant to what we've done in Alaska too, is like, how do you plan? This is totally a DIY thing. How do you plan a trip where you're like, you can't like Google the blog of someone who's done it. You can't read about it in the Lonely Planet, anything like that. How do you find like this adventure that's just sitting out there and no one's done it? And one of the things that, I mean, maps, we talked a little bit about that before. Awesome. But one of the things I found to be really valuable for me is to look at Google Earth and and actually literally one of the things, this is, I, I like this because it's, I think, really simple, is you look at Google Earth and you just say, what's weird on here? Like, start scrolling around if you're like, the ground is a different color there. Or, you know, wow, all these ridges that are really close together. Or whatever it is that, like, draws your eye, then start looking at that and think about, well, how would I get there? And Because almost always those places are incredible when you're there on the ground. There's some things that you won't find by looking at Google Earth, but there are there are a lot that you will and um and uh and it can lead you 
into places where nobody nobody's thought of going and doing a trip there and um and i find that that really exciting and and is a is a, you know it doesn't have to even be something super gnarly like you can just be like oh that's weird i think i'll go there and maybe it's easy to get there you know so i thought i'd throw that out there as just an idea a very diy kind of i think if i'm understanding how you're taking that term <laughs> yeah i like it diy um in in the context of hunting is yeah. very much about uh, the other side of the coin from like a guided right. or outfitted hunt. It has so a, it's it has kind a of fairly like, specific definition in that context. Yeah, it, in that context it does. Yeah. So what you guys do is very <laughs> DIY to like kind of an extreme <laughs> yeah. and within the hunting context it's kind of like anything that's, any hunting activity that's not guided or outfitted like by a professional or a service. Yeah. Um, which Speaking f- of yeah, hunting, ahead. one of the most amazing places we've been um, just just trekking is Umnak oh, yeah. Island out on the Aleutians and they have introduced caribou there that like the And bison now, right? Do they? That, remember they were talking about the way anyway, they just done that. Anyway, um, the native association and there owns them <laughs> and, and will yeah. <laughs> and will sell permits for people to go hunt them and there's and and they, they, they can to, do yeah. whatever they want because they're an invasive species so the so they're more or less closer to owned livestock than they are to a wild than they are to a wild um, animal, but they are wild. They're wandering around. They just aren't quite part of the same regulatory sure. system because they weren't yep. introduced there. Well, the island and the is, island is like yeah. the most incredible place ever. They've got it's like, kind of like hot springs on the beach, so you can whoa. like. Jessica bathe. got really interested <laughs> all of a sudden. <laughs> so you can like you can hang out on the beach, and at low tide, you can just like lounge in the Bering Sea like it was a hot tub <laughs> in the ocean. The hot springs and, come yeah, out on the ocean it, side. It, it, like it yeah, hits it's the beach, and so you can't see them at high tide. But when the tide drops down, it's just shallow water over the sand, and Where? the sand is hot enough that it heats it up, and you can just it's like, like a quarter mile long section too. Yeah, yeah, and you just like, but, um, like bath. Bathtub warm? Yeah, like bathtub. It can be like, hot. You know, there are places where you step on the sand and you're like, Ooh, Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like hot tub. Okay. Like you're using the Bering Sea as your hot tub. Literally. What island is this, Aaron? Umnak Island. Umnak. So Umnak. not to be confused I, okay. with Unamak. And then it's just gotcha. beautiful um, and there's Umnak. these big volcanoes and like plains of wildflowers. Yeah, Akmak is such like a cool place. It has like a gigantic caldera that erupted in 2008. So it's all badlands inside. But then the rest of the island is, I like you how know, you green. started that whole thing with Speaking of hunting, yeah, a lot of I'm like, wow, hot springs at the end. Well, see, see, that's what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring together like, okay, you can hunt caribou there, and and it's also like the most amazing place ever. Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah, and geysers and yeah, there are actual geysers. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of guys out there right now reaching for pen and paper to write down the name of this island because they've been wanting to do some crazy adventure in Alaska and getting pushed back from Nikolski is the that's the, other. the mm-hmm. entry point is Nikolski. Yeah, you have uh, to get to Dutch Harbor uh, and fly okay. to this yeah, it's teeny not cheap. little knitted village. I mean, unless you're really going to walk it. Not cheap to get out so. there. No, that's cool. Unless you walk. Can you walk there? Uh, Plus a pack only well, you pack can take the state ferry to Dutch, and then if you're really ambitious, you can actually get there by foot and pack raft by crossing crossing on Alaska. Which is a whole adventure itself. Yeah. The, the, the pass between, we actually crossed, and it, it was one of the most technically challenging marine paddling we've ever done. Because it's of currents? Yeah. Huge currents. You got the open bearing and Pacific Oceans on either side, yeah. and the weather is crazy and fog. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really, really uh, hard crossing. So not one I would but recommend. But if you go, you can also people. fly to the island yeah. directly, and then you don't have to cross. Right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
Gotcha. Um, and they have but, uh, both. Yeah, very interesting place. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a pretty cool place. It was one of, we went there actually with my mother and the kids a few years back, and it's just, just such an amazing landscape. And there's no bears there, and as much as I think bears are amazing animals, you know, I let the kids run a little freer when they aren't right. around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, how did you get there? We we flew we f- one way. We took the ferry to Dutch, then we flew out to Nikolski, and then we walked back to Dutch. Oh, cool! And took the ferry back. And we to so we, we spent seven weeks, something like that. Yeah, so yeah. with like for that. the whole thing, both yeah, the, both islands, both islands, yeah. And it was yeah, not at all the straightest route. <laughs> <laughs> right, gotcha. All right. Anyway, uh, we've been going for a while, and I feel like we haven't heard like talked nearly enough about your adventures because we just keep talking around them which is fun as well yeah i don't think covering all the adventures should be a priority because there there are kind of there are a lot of them it's been awesome this has been fun (laughs) thanks yeah thank you (laughs) (laughs) this is alaska diy alaska (laughs) diy hey thanks so much for listening to this episode of alaska diy If you are interested in the show notes or if you want to get notifications via the email so you don't miss another episode, I'm going to send you to my website. But before you go there, know I just want to be completely upfront and honest with you. I started Alaska DIY to help some buddies back home who have always dreamed of hunting Alaska but just did not know where to start planning their hunt. So I thought, hey, I can do something about this. And I created this guide called the Kodiak Sitka Blacktail Guide. It's my first product that I put out. I am charging money for it. It is for sale. But here's the deal. I believe in providing way more value than what I ask for in return. So check out the guide. It's 100 bucks. Or I just recently included a new payment option where for $10 a month for a year, so it's 120 bucks, you pay a little bit more. It's the, it's the price of a good six-pack of IPA. You know, 10 bucks a month, you can get that guide. And of course, there's a full refund, infinity money back guarantee, like all that kind of, like, I'm not going to take your money if you're not happy with it. So check it out if you want to. Okay, but this is not a sales pitch. I don't want to, I don't want you to think that I'm pitching you on this. This is if you're interested. If this is a dream that you've ever had and, and you're interested in a written how-to guide with links and phone numbers of services and products and all the things that you need from one end to the other, even if you've never planned an out-of-state hunt before, it's all in there. If you're interested in that, then you're welcome to go check it out, okay? But I just want to let you know that I'm going to send you to the website in order to get the show notes, and I don't want you to be like, oh, this guy's so sleazy. You know, he's sending, it's like the backdoor sales thing where it's like you tease me with show notes and then you just slam me with the sales pitch. Okay, it's not like that. That's not what I'm trying to do. It's just all on one website. So if you're not interested in that, ignore the webpage that says buy now or get a sneak peek. Don't don't look at any of that. Go to huntalaskadiy.com. Huntalaskadiy.com. Go there, go to the upper right-hand corner, click on podcast, okay? That's going to take you to the podcast page where you can stream the episodes and you can get show notes with links of things that we talk about on there. Now, if you want to get an email notification so you don't miss any future episodes of Alaska DIY, you can click on the upper right-hand corner where it says, what does it say? I wrote it. Subscribe. It says subscribe. 
click there. You can punch in your name and email and I'll send you uh, a notification every time I'm releasing a new episode so you don't miss one. Now, I will send you an occasional email mainly about stuff I'm learning while in the field, tips or tricks that might help you out when you come up to Alaskan hunt, some potential gear reviews, or maybe less formal than a review, but just stuff I'm trying out and like, hey, this worked really awesome for me. I recommend it if you're coming up here and hunting in these type of circumstances. So if you want more information about Alaska, occasionally, remember I'm in the field about seven months out of the year, you can subscribe to that newsletter as well as get the notifications when the podcasts drop. Okay, so upper right-hand corner podcast, click there for show notes. Upper right-hand corner, subscribe, click there for occasional email plus notifications of, on when new podcasts drop. And then if you don't want to be sold nothing, you know, you're, you've been warned. So just don't look at the main page where it talks about the Kodiak Sika Blacktail Guide, how cool it is, how easy it is to use it. And how awesome the money-back guarantee really... Actually, it doesn't say that at all. It just says, like, money-back guarantee, I think. If you have any questions, you can always email me at abe, A-B-E, at huntalaskadiy.com. Okay, I have a ton of fun recording these podcasts and getting them out there for you folks just to share it with you. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. I hope it's been helpful in some way or at the very least mildly entertaining for you and made your morning or evening commute go by just a little bit quicker. Just one more thing before I turn this contraption off. When my children were approaching hunting age, I knew that I wanted to teach them about the tenderness of hunting. There's always been a moment right after I kill an animal that is overwhelmingly conflicting. When I kneel next to an animal that died at my hands, I experience elation, joy, and gratitude as well as love and sorrow. In an effort to mark this tender moment, I began a very simple family tradition. Now when we take an animal's life, the killer kneels and places a hand on the dead animal's still warm body and recites these words, Thank you for your life which sustains us. It's not much, but a reminder to pause in an otherwise busy and exciting moment to show our respect and gratitude. It's also a reminder that the meat that nourishes our bodies throughout the year came at the expense of an individual animal's life. So here is my ask for you. Take a child or a loved one into the woods. Teach them love and respect for all things. Teach them the skills necessary to hunt with humility and to be deadly so that animals do not suffer at their hands. Most importantly, teach them to be grateful for wild places and wild creatures.